December 15, 843-661-0937, our number. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Good morning, No Shot Josh. Good morning. It's going to be very interesting, Josh and Rev, to watch this story run into the to the resistance that I imagine it will run into. Here's the story. For those of you just joining uh, or just hearing about it, the insurance companies paid out about $100 billion in excess death benefit during COVID. That stands to reason. Um, the uh, What caught them off guard and what they didn't model, because they do all these actuaries and algorithms and models and whatnot, and they can pretty well predict how many people, you know, between 18 and 29 die unexpectedly. I mean, they don't know who it is. They don't know why it is. But they have these actuarial models that basically say, I pronounced that entire word, actuarial yeah. models that basically say, you know, um, 0.4% of 18 to 25-year-olds will die unexpectedly. Maybe a car wreck, maybe cancer, whatever. Um, that's based on historical statistics. Historical, that's right. I mean, and they, and they, they have to base their whole business model on that. That's the only thing they can do. Yeah. I mean, I've got life insurance, and i got a premium. Um, and the reason my premium is a certain price is I am um, a certain age. I have a certain uh, maintained health status. I got a good rate because I think I take pretty good care of myself. Uh, I got a business partnership. One of the guys does not take care of himself at all. I mean at all. He has a big time. Um, And we couldn't get insurance on one another. We couldn't afford him. You know, these key man policies, uh, it basically buys your share out if something were um, to happen, if you were to meet your maker, um, so to speak. But the insurance companies paid about $100 billion in excess death benefits or excessive death benefits during COVID. Um, And the actuaries can't predict the pandemic. I mean, I guess they can. I mean, if a pandemic happens once every 100 years, I would imagine, you know, the big life insurance companies that pay a lot of money to run these programs and analysis say, yeah, I mean, you know, it hadn't happened in 90 years. What are the odds of a a pandemic happening? Well, it's um, you got to figure that in to some degree. So anyway. The insurance companies take it on the chin. I mean, they really do. Now, there's some reinsurance as it relates to this. I mean, Northwest Mutual, New York Live had some reinsurance policies. You know, Lloyd's of London or somebody like that would say, I mean, it would go like this. New York Life goes to Lloyd's of London and says, hey, our models say, you know, we're going to pay $50 million in death benefit to people between the age of 18 and 45. What if we have to pay more than that? Will you sell us an insurance policy that covers the excessive, you know, the excessive death benefit above and beyond that? I bet it gets real creative and real highfalutin. Um, and people try to figure out a way to make a buck off, you know, the different and varieties of ways to, to kind of insure. But here's what's happening, guys. The insurance companies believed that the premium would go back to what, what their actuarial norms. And it's not. In fact, in the most recent, um, since January through November, they're at about plus 158,000. 158,000 excessive deaths of working age Americans, young working, that's the cohort. I mean, that, that's exactly a, excessive deaths of young working age Americans is plus 158,000. So they went to MIT and they hired a bunch of, uh, MIT has this department that does these analysis that comes back with some sort of um, inexact conclusion, but based on correlations, I guess would be. Um, so, so the government, they went to the government and they said, look, we're taking it on the chin still, man. I mean, we're paying 158,000 people death benefits that our model said we weren't going to 
have to pay. And the government basically said, well, it's obesity. It's, uh, it's, uh, they did say this. I read yesterday, the Wall Street Journal, they said some of this could be depression related. Suicides are up amongst young Americans, depression related because we had lockdowns and that permanently scarred certain people who were dealing with, you know, mental issues anyway. I mean, the last person somebody semi-depressed needs to be is kind of locked in a room somewhere. I mean, depression really becomes a big deal. So the government said it's probably a combination of obesity, um, you know, some of the suicide rates reflecting from maybe the COVID pandemic era had something to do with that. Um, Opioid overdoses, fentanyl, and all those things are major contributors. And the team at MIT said, eh, it looks to us like the um, the adverse report, the, um, the what, what am I trying to say? The, the, the VAERS. The VAERS report. The uh, incident, uh, the, what was it called? I mean, give, give me the exact word. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to misspeak here. But it's the, um, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting there System. There you go. There you, V-A-E-R-S, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. So they pulled the data from the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, and they found a correlation. And the insurance companies, here's my prediction. I don't run New York Life. I don't run Northwest Mutual. I don't run John Hancock. I mean, some of the major and, and, and legacy insurance companies, life insurance companies in particular in America. But I wonder this, Josh. I wonder, Rev, if the insurance companies at some point in time in the next year or two buy into this data that they're getting from a company that does, really is researchers that have done all this um, gathering of data. And I wonder if they charge someone who has been vaccinated a higher premium than someone who has not. I mean, the story is not hmm. going to get traction. I mean, it's just not going to get traction. But but their, their belief, some of the insurance companies believe, yeah, obesity is probably a part of this. Depression may be a part of this. Um, suicide relating from depression and mental illness. Um, some of the uh, some of the fentanyl and, and opiate overdose may be a part of this. But but our data says that the major contributor to the 158,000 people working age, young working age Americans that our model said weren't going to die, that have died, and we've had to pay death benefits, not them, but I mean a lot of different companies have had to pay a lot of different death benefits. Our data says that it's the VAERS report that the only correlation we can find is the vaccine accident events reporting system. So I wonder if the government will allow the insurance companies, and will the insurance companies have to ask blessings? we got insurance commissions in states and the federal level that basically regulate what insurance companies can and cannot do. I wonder if this is the beginning of the insurance companies asking permission of some of the insurance commissions as to whether they can charge a higher premium. Josh and I have... We're the same age, the same weight, the same birthday, the same uh, metrics and measures of health. Josh's cholesterol and blood pressure and heart rate are exactly what mine is. The difference is um, Josh has had the vaccine. Now, we know he has not, but I've not. Will the insurance company charge him more for having been vaccinated than they will me? I mean, they base it on models, correct? And if they believe there's a correlation between people who have been vaccinated and the um, the occurrences of paying out death benefits, they're in it for the money. I mean, they're not altruistic. They're not public service. I mean, they're not the Biden family, public servants personified. I mean, they're actually trying to make a profit. I mean, we know the Bidens would never do anything such as that. They're the altruistic public servants, um, but the insurance companies are in it for the money. Shareholders, stock returns, uh, you know, quarterly reports, and they're just getting hammered right now, and... 
it, that, that would be the insult of all insults to the vaccines, as far as I'm concerned, how safe and effective the vaccine was. I want to buy some life insurance. So the guy asked me if I'd been vaccinated or not. And I said, yeah. He said, oh, your premium's going to be higher. What do you mean my premium's going to be higher? You've been vaccinated. I mean, we've got reason to believe that it's more likely you die <laughs> before the age of 55 than if not having been uh, vaccinated. That's basically what they're saying. I'm sure that's I mean, what they're saying. Yeah. Now, they've not said that yet. There's just kind of an internal debate mm-hmm. that the big insurance companies. Now, I don't have any idea what Pfizer says or Moderna or Johnson & Johnson. I don't have any idea. Um, I would imagine they're funneling cash to some elected officials to make sure none of this is ever um, <laughs> really? know, made public or come to the light of day. I tweeted yesterday in, in line with that. Well, here's the issue. You've got big pharma in one corner, but you don't have Joe Blow with the other. You've got big insurance companies. Mm, okay. I mean, that, that's kind of a heavyweight fight in the world of lobbying and consulting, right? I mean, in this corner, you got Joe Sixpack. In this corner, you got Big Pharma. Who wins that? That's a first-round knockout. I mean, that's Mike Tyson, Marvis Frazier, right? But in this corner, you got Big Pharma, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson. In this corner, you got Big Insurance. You got New York Life and Northwest Mutual and John Hancock and all these other enormous insurance companies. Who wins that? Well, you also have the government who promoted the vaccine and in some cases required the vaccine, right? Not only required, gave drug companies blanket immunity almost. That if something were to happen. So so imagine if you're an insurer and and your your business is hoping people don't die. I mean, when you're selling life insurance, you know what you want? Very few people to die. You want people to be healthy and live long and not pay death benefits. And if you got a 20-year term on Josh, you know what you want Josh to do? You want him to live 21 years. So you don't have to pay that death benefit. You've collected a premium. You've made a profit. You've invested that money in some form, fashion. You probably made 10 or 12% return on the premium Josh paid over the 20 years. But all of a sudden, who does the insurance company sue? Because the government gave the, right? I mean, the government gave the pharmaceutical company Sort of blanket immunity. Right. Hold on to that because this will be a good way, a segue. Remember Friday when we were at the Hilton and Kingston Plantation and we had this debate toward the end of the show and you couldn't figure out exactly where you landed about um, Big Pharma having patents and the government basically going after the patents? I mean, isn't this kind of an argument? I mean, it, it, is this or not part and parcel to the debate of giving Big Pharma blanket immunity, basically saying, hey, if your medicine happens to go bad and kill people, you're not going to be held liable. So who do the insurance companies go after? I mean, if indeed we're right, and I don't know that, I mean, this isn't a preliminary. I mean, we don't have, we've not had a Warren Commission on the vaccine. Um, There's probably a reason we've not. But but, um, but what if this, what if this argument persists or persists, I think would be the better word, what if this argument persists and the insurance companies look for some sort of resolution and as part of that begin to question the blanket immunity the government gave some of these drug uh, and pharmaceutical companies? What happens there? I mean, once again, in this corner, you've got Big Pharma or you've got Big Insurance. In this corner, you got Joe Sixpack. We know who wins that. I mean, you're the bug, they're the, they're the windshield. But in one corner... What if you had big pharma and in the other corner you had big insurance and the government and I guess the courts are acting as referee. Take a break back in just a minute. 
Okay, Josh, would you agree with me that in a fight between what the government does or does not do, in one corner is Joe Sixpack, in the other corner is Big Pharma, who wins that? Big Pharma. By a mile. Oh, yeah. In one corner, Joe Sixpack, in one corner, Big Insurance. Big Insurance. Okay, in one corner, Big Manufacturing. I mean, you, you see where I'm headed. Yes. Okay, here's the, here's the oddity of this. It looks to me like there could eventually be a battle between Big Insurance and Big Pharma. And that would be Evander Holyfield and Mike Tyson. I mean, that wouldn't be Marvis Frazier and Mike Tyson. I mean, that would be, it may take somebody biting an ear off, you know, to get the, uh, to get the old W in the, uh, in the win column. But you weren't with us Friday. I want to get your take on this because all conservatives have some strain of libertarianism. I mean, Rev does, I do. Some, it, it's, it's deep and intense. Others, it's a little bit, wow, okay. I may be a bit libertarian on that. I'm not libertarian on this. I understand government. I don't want to drown in the bathtub, um, except on these issues, except on those issues. But, but here's an interesting and perplexing debate that I found. Um, the Biden administration are doing something that most conservatives would oppose. They're basically saying to the drug manufacturers, you didn't build that. Remember the Obama saying, you didn't really build that? Um, I don't, you, Josh would be younger. I mean, he may not remember that. You remember yeah. it well. Oh, I mean, oh, it was, yeah. um, it was when Obama revealed his socialist tendencies when he said, yeah, but you didn't really build that. I mean, you know, the government had something to do with that. The, um, the roads, the water, the sewer, the, uh, the infrastructure, the taxes, the, uh, you know, the safety and security provided by first responders and law enforcement. You didn't really build that. But this isn't the Wild West. Everything is done to some degree hand-in-hand with the government. So the Biden administration last week made a public announcement that they were considering considering some executive action regarding medical patents, some of the drugs, some of the pharmaceutical companies that do all the R&D. And they fail miserably on some fronts. We know that. They lose millions and millions and millions of dollars pursuing a better cancer treatment, never can get it right, never can get it to market. So, so it's a little bit like, I mean, it's somewhat like the hospitals will tell you the reason they have to charge us so much is the non-payers. You got to make it up from somewhere. I'm not saying I agree with that, but that's their, that's their rationale. So um, I began saying, okay, does the Biden administration need to pass a law? No, they don't need to pass a law. Um, Congress gave the executive branch that sort of power way back in 1980. And and I want to go back to this. There was legislation co-sponsored by Senator Robert Dole of Kansas, a Republican, and Birch Bayh, a Democrat of Indiana. Um, Birch Bayh would be famous for most of us. He lost to Dan Quayle. Quayle became the eventual vice president of uh, George H.W. Bush, famously misspelled potato. Um, Told the kid, no, there's an E on there. Kid says, I don't think there is. Yeah, I'm sure there is. There's an E on there. Um, I don't think there is. So he became kind of a dunce. You know what I mean? Made one big mistake. Kind of a dunce. Gerald Ford falls off the stage. He's a dunce. You know, you make that faux pas, you're, um, you're penalized for the rest of your life. So the Bayh-Dole Act addressed kind of what I'll call a bottleneck. It basically said that, that universities, nonprofits, small businesses um, can – Patent federally funded inventions. I mean, it gave a university that is federally funded by by and large. It gave them the ability to patent. It gave a university, excuse me, it gave a nonprofit the ability um, to patent. 
but it but it put in it what they call a marching in clause. In the and I got to believe this would have been by. I mean, I'd like to believe Dole didn't buy this, but in the process of seeing, hey, who owns this patent? I mean, like, Pfizer came up with a, with a patent on a, on a medicine or a drug, but it was a lot of the a lot of the technology. Well, not tech, a lot of the um, what the medical research was done at the Duke Medical School, the Johns Hopkins Medical School, the um, the Vanderbilt School of Medicine, one of these elite prestigious schools that have become so um, famous recently. So out of that came, you know, a very effective uh, blood pressure medicine. And the pharmaceutical companies made millions and millions and millions of dollars. But the university, the federally funded university, did a lot of the research. And the Bayh-Dole Act basically says that if the industry decides it's, you know, it, it's, it's, if the industry decides to consider that the right to, to write a blank check, R-I-G-H-T or, or W-R-I-T, the right to write a blank check that the government can march in and seize back the license or patented. So in other words, if Pfizer brings that drug to market and the drug remains affordable to the government's liking, the government says, okay, Pfizer makes some money. I mean, it, you know, that's not really your medicine. The, the, um, that medicine derived from a laboratory at, you know, Johns Hopkins or the Harvard School of Medicine but we get it. I mean, you guys took it to market. You guys did all the ancillary research and development necessary to get it to market. But all of a sudden, that medicine goes from um, Rev's got high blood pressure. He takes high blood pressure medicine, and he's paying forty bucks a month. Okay, fair enough. I mean, he'd rather not, but he has to. All of a sudden, that medicine goes from forty to four hundred, and Rev goes, "Man, I can't pay four hundred. I mean, I can't afford insurance. I can't pay four hundred for medicine." The government, legislatively, I'm not talking about in theory. The government has a piece of legislation that allows them to march in and seize back that license, that patent that allowed that drug company to bring that drug to market. How do we feel about that? I mean, I got to believe a liberal says good. You know, those greedy capitalists, good. How do we feel about that? Because I'll tell you, I mean, if, if if you've got any sense of libertarianism about you, it's an assault on property rights. But if you're J.D. Vance or Josh Hawley and you've argued that, you know, government's going to do certain things, let's do the right thing by the American working people. We know that Rev's better if he doesn't have to pay $400 for high blood pressure medicine, but rather $40, right? I mean, we know that's the case. But, the, the you know, the company that has the patent has a right to do what? Charge you what they choose to charge you. I mean, they, they've got some of these patent protections about, you know, um, generic drugs and whatnot. I think generics come along what, five, six, seven years? The majority of patents give you kind of exclusivity for a certain number of years, and then the competition comes in, drugs made in Canada, generic drugs made in China, and your your, your patent is nowhere near as valuable as it once was. I guess you try to make as much money as you can, you know, while the patent gives you, ah, I mean, it's not intellectual property, but kind of sort of is. I mean, it's your product that you bought to market. How do we feel about that? I mean, isn't that a bit confusing to conservative Americans? A little, little conflict. Well, how in, do you feel? Does a drug company have a right to increase the price to a point of unaffordability? Well, in general, yes. That's business. And, and the market Capitalism. says, and the market says, well, just don't pay it. But you need the medicine. Right. I mean, it's something you've got to have. It seems morally questionable, to say the least. So is it, is it a moral like issue? Is it a moral and ethical issue? Or is it a legislative matter? Or is it a matter of the market? 
See, that's a very conflicting question. It's all. It's it all is of the all. above. I mean, it's capitalism, right? Under examination. Yep. It's um, it's government legislation. How do you feel about the government doing X, Y, or Z? Once again, Biden, because when Biden said that, I'm going, you can't do that. I mean, that's, that's taking away property rights. I mean, you can't. I mean, that, that patent is property of that company. And it is, except the Bidoyle, the Bidoyle agreement says, eh, it's yours until you abuse it. I mean, it's yours until you, you show you can't be trusted with that authority and that ability to make a, a, a decent profit. See, there you go again. What's a decent profit? That's subjective. You know, what, what's a fair margin? And then here we are. And, and the Biden administration is probably sooner than later going after some of these pharmaceutical companies that they believe are charging too much for a certain medicine. And what they'll probably do is threaten to do these things in hopes or anticipation that the drug maker will kind of give in and say, okay, we went from $40 to $400. What if we go back to $120? I mean, what is a fair market value for that drug? I don't have any idea. I mean, I don't know what the answer to this question is. But as an America First Republican, not hung up on conservative ideology, I mean, if you're a libertarian, you know the answer. I mean, you know, keep the government out of it. But we didn't keep the government out of it on the front end. I mean, that's the mistake that was made. These drugs, by and large, have been created. I mean, obviously, the, the, the for-profit company did the lion's share of work. But some of the work was done in publicly funded research universities that kind of handed off or passed along the science that led to a vaccine, a blood pressure medicine, uh, you know, a diabetes medicine, whatever, what a multivitamin. I don't, I don't have any idea. Um, I just think it's an interesting dilemma that people who call themselves conservatives will find them. There's no, I mean, a liberal would be just as comfortable as anything saying, I mean, if you're, if you're hardwired to be a liberal, you'd say, of course, I mean, you can't let, you know how those capitalists are. They'll abuse I mean, they, you know, they'll, they'll abuse any privilege you give them. I mean, that's what they do. They'll charge 4000 for the medicine if they could. You know, they're after profit, not not altruism or doing right by by the American people. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. Okay, Josh, I know you've been under the weather, and I've let some of your youthful and irresponsible opinions go by the wayside. I've not allowed you to, to um, exercise the authority the microphone gives you for fear of you saying something you'll regret because I know you're battling the dreaded cold. But I know you to be a fairly conservative man. Mm -hmm. I know you to be a thoughtful man. Um, Rev has admitted that he gets conflicted on this particular situation. Um, I could argue whichever side was paying me. I'm to be, I always put myself in a lobbyist spot. Are there certain things I just couldn't do? Yeah, I mean, there's certain things I'm just not lobbying for. But there are a lot of things I could, you know, and if this side paid me a little more money than that side, I'd probably take it. I could justify self-justification to get paid is what it is. But, I mean, hey, the difference in me and you is I'll say it, and the majority of you won't. Um, you understand the situation. Mm -hmm. I mean, the drug companies are making enormous profits on a certain medicine. What is the fair market price for that medicine? You'd like to believe the market sets that, but we know in, in healthcare, we don't really have a true free market. So, so the argument the Biden administration is making is time to march in and the dole by legislation gives us the ability, gives us the ability to march in. And we're not taking anybody's property because they would have never had the property 
if the research had not been done at a publicly funded um, institution of higher learning. You say what to that? I kind of agree with Biden on this one. I'm okay with, uh, you know, because uh, I generally am a capitalist. I, I do believe that once you get the government, you get any institution too involved with absolutely everything, then certain things are going to get overlooked and, and there's going to be trouble, whether that's like a purely capitalist system or a purely uh, governmental communist system. Things are going to get mucked up. What if they can prove, Rev and Josh, what if they can prove that none of the medicine was ever derived or or the genesis is from a publicly funded, I mean, you have a big trial, and out of that mm-hmm. comes, a, you know, kind of a conclusion, a, you know, a, a judge and a jury and all these experts come along and they say, hey, I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, um, research universities do a lot of, a lot of um, research in medicine, but none of this technology, none of this, re, none of this, um, Medical development came as a result of, you know, a publicly funded higher education institute. So, therefore, it's ours and we can do what we choose to do with that. I would imagine that would be the crux of the debate. But, but right, what? Because the only argument is that this was taxpayer money that helped you create this and now you're receiving the benefit from correct. it. So, we have a little say in but, that. But when is, I mean, it's very ambiguous about marching in. I mean, I'll read it here. Bayh-Dole was never intended to, to allow industry to write a blank check. The government retained marching rights to seize back a license or patent if warranted by circumstances that included health and safety. Mm, okay. So if you're selling ice cream more expensive and some of the, um, some of the um, let, let's go here. If some of the artificial sweeteners came from research done at Duke, that's not safety nor health but medicine's a different animal right i mean if you don't like this ice cream don't buy that ice cream you don't have to have that rev's got to have that medicine i mean he's got high blood pressure and he'll have a lot of health complications if if he can't get his hands on that medicine that's why the legislation was written with a write-in clause that allowed government to basically say to the drug company hey uh you're gouging people I mean, we feel you're gouging people, and because we feel you're gouging people, but see, that's the subjective part of this. Who is right. we to feel? I mean, that's when right. is and gouging? What is, and what is gouging? Sure. I mean, what is gouging? I mean, if medicine is 40 and goes to 60, I feel like I got gouged. I mean, if it goes to 400, I feel like I got screwed. You know, but but when, I mean, that's a very subjective and, you know, human part of, of the debate. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Larry in the PD. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. I've been looking around. I've checked in my glove box and my center console, and I just cannot find my sympathy for the drug companies anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I think that you guys are, are on it, that, that they, they made a deal with the devil, and they, they probably went into it going, oh, yeah, but it won't happen to us. They won't do it to us because we're Pfizer, we're their favorite, or we're here, or we're there. But I love the question you're asking. Uh, how much is too much and, and all that. Well, here's the great news. We get to decide. Um, if the Democrats control the government and they do things that cause the economy or, or our health care system to not flourish, then we say, hey, that's no good. And we, we vote them out. And then the Republicans can come in and give it a try. And if what they do uh, doesn't work, and I think that's the back and forth nature of the two-party system, right? But ultimately, who decides it's gouging? We do. When there's public outcry and the government is uh, 
you know, moved by that, then they'll take the appropriate action. If they go too far, there'll be public outcry against it. Um, all of this kind of comes back to what I was talking about the other day. The government is there to promote the general welfare. And I would say if you've got a diabetes drug that people rely on and, uh, you know, it's, its demand is very uh, unwavering because if you don't take it, you, you may die. Obviously, the, the money, you know, for the buyer, they'll, they'll hawk their car if they have to, right? And then the, the public outcry would be such that the government would want to step in. I can understand that. But, I mean, you know, if it's, you know, Viagra, I don't think the government needs to step in and deal with that. But someone else might. That's the great thing about politics. Um, and then, you know, we, we kind of fight it out. We pick the representatives that we think will enforce that law the way we are comfortable with it being enforced. But ultimately, I don't have a problem with the law. You, you may have a problem with its enforcement. But then, like I say, you just pick better enforcers of that law and give it another go. Well, explain. Thanks, Larry. Appreciate that. I think Larry nailed it. You make a deal with the devil. I mean, that, you know, those, those companies made a deal with the devil. That There was some sort of um, medical science discovered in a, in a research university lab that received taxpayer dollars. And you took that medical development or that medical science, you incorporated it into the, uh, you know, the creation of a, uh, uh, you know, a, a cancer drug. And that's not the free market. You can't say that's the free market. I mean, that's, I'm not saying it's crony capitalism, but it's a convergence. I mean, it, it, it's, it's distorting. It's manipulating. It's, it's capitalist kind of meeting government. And I think Larry makes an interesting point. We get to decide how much is too much or how much is not enough by electing conservatives or liberals or libertarians or, you know, um, socialists. Uh, there, there's some in Congress now that profess to be socialists. There's some that call themselves a libertarian. I mean, if everybody in Congress was Rand Paul, I think that agreement will look a certain way. But everybody in Congress is not Rand Paul. you got a Rand Paul, and then you've got a Chuck Schumer, and then you've got a Mitch McConnell, kind of an insider. And all those people bring all those opinions and perspectives to the table, and out of that comes an agreement, a deal. Um, but but I, I figured a lot of us who consider ourselves fairly conservative would 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 you know find ourselves not being fully capitalist on this because, once again, it didn't start out as a capitalist endeavor. It's not the animal spirits of the free market once you agree to incorporate, uh, you know, research done at a publicly funded university. Take a break. Back in a few. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Uh, Williams was talking a little bit about voting for Biden, voting for Trump. One of the newfound phenomenons that's happened since the beginning of the week is we have a, a formally um, launched impeachment inquiry. We had a vote 221 to 212, every Republican voting in favor, every Democrat voting against. The majority, I guess the main reason is the House felt it was being stonewalled. They weren't, um, the White House was not complying with the investigation. Uh, the impeachment inquiry gives them, I guess, more authority, broader discretion of what they can investigate, uh, what they can't. Political historian, independent political analyst, and the great American political trivia challenge author Richard Rubino is with us. Richard, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Good, thank you. So so what changes pre-impeachment inquiry vote and now that the House has voted 221 to 212 to formally um, inquire about the impeachment of President Joe Biden? Well, essentially they voted, and this is one thing here that is emphasized with members of the Republican leadership, 
that they do, that this is not an actual impeachment vote. This is simply an inquiry for an impeachment vote. And part of they were able to get more moderate members like Don Bacon from Nebraska, for example, um, some of the more moderate members in Biden districts to vote for this. They could go back to their constituents and say this is certainly an inquiry, and it's not an actual vote. Now, if they if they just, if the inquiry decides that there is that there is grounds for an impeachment, it then goes to the Judiciary Committee, which then theoretically could vote on articles of impeachment, which then goes to the full House. If the full House were to vote a majority for it, then it goes to the United States Senate, and then theoretically there would be a tri- there would be a trial, and they need the two they need the two thirds. It's a very far-fetched idea that this, that this is actually going to be a trial and there's actually going to be a conviction. So I think that's kind of the rhetoric that they're using right now, but it's only an inquiry. It's not an actual impeachment. But their complaint was the White House was not complying with their investigation. Does that change that? Uh, I don't think so. And I think that the other the, the other main complaint is that uh, Hunter Biden specifically, they say they, they want him to appear behind closed doors. He said, I want to do a public hearing only. That's another potential. Jim Jordan, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, is talking, and and Bud Comer of the um, House Oversight Committee are talking about potentially putting him in contempt um, and giving him that authority, which would which would theoretically force him to testify. But I don't think there's necessarily anything different in terms of the investigation. What we know about about um, Hunter Biden's relationships between now and say last week. And and is that fair to say that the public are beginning to try and understand? Why is Hunter Biden so essential to the impeachment of his father? We're not trying to impeach Hunter Biden. I mean, Hunter Biden is a private citizen. Uh, Maybe he's done some bad things. Maybe he has not. But this eventually is how much Hunter Biden knows about Joe Biden's involvement in in his business dealings. Yeah, Hunter Biden is certainly not, you know, he's not the big fish here. It's more specifically Joe Biden and whether whether Joe Biden, I mean, whether 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 Hunter Biden used his influence with Joe Biden and whether Joe Biden was receptive to essentially make money, not during, this is not during, by the way, the Biden presidential administration. This goes back to when Joe Biden was vice president under Barack Obama. So a lot of it goes back to then. And that's another question some people are asking is, should there really be an impeachment inquiry to something that happened under a per, our previous administration? Um, so those are certainly other things. It reminds me a little bit of Whitewater. If you remember the 1990s, the scandal of, uh, of Whitewater, that, was, that actually did not go into anything that Bill Clinton necessarily did as president. A lot of that was a land deal that went back to his days in Arkansas, for example. So, it wasn't, so that is certainly something I think many people would certainly question um, for both Whitewater and some of the opponents would certainly question for this as well. Richard, I've studied and read, and obviously, I mean, I'm a conservative radio show host. I had a certain world or have a certain worldview. I've tried to be open-minded, try to be fair uh, about the process. It seems to me there's a lot of loan repayments and a lot of documentation of loan repayments, not a lot of documents about the loans having been made. Is that critical to this case? Um, that's a good question, and the answer is yes, probably. And this is, I guess, where you would theoretically you would have the inquiry and they would try to find out some of that, um, some of that information. I think, though, from politic, from mere political standpoint right now, Joe Biden is able to make the case, and this is where he benefits, this is what benefits him, he can go back to the American people and say, essentially, I'm working for you, Congress is essentially working on these investigations, and they're stonewalling, and they're going on vacations. So to that extent, it works for Joe Biden, just like it worked for Bill Clinton under Whitewater, because he was able to use the same kind of an argument, saying, essentially, we need to get back to work for the American people, not dealing with it, not dealing with this. So that, that, in that respect, I think politically, it would benefit Joe Biden. But I just saw a poll that about half the country wants the inquiry and half the country doesn't want the inquiry. I guess that probably shows us how bifurcated the country is ideologically right now that immediately Democrats can go one side and Republicans will go the other. Yeah, it's about half on any issue, half one side, half the other side. Yes, oh, thank, my gosh. Thank you, Richard. Appreciate your time. Have a great weekend, sir. Th- thank you. You as well, sir.
And that's kind of an interesting perspective. Once again, I don't know. I mean, we've not been privileged to all the details and specifics. I've read uh, a good bit recently because you knew the vote was coming. One of the encouraging parts, I guess, if you're a Republican, that Speaker Johnson was able to get everybody on board. I mean, that's a big deal. Um, you've got a very, very divided caucus. You've got a Freedom Caucus. You've got moderates. you got, I think, 18 Republican members of Congress who are going to run again in districts that Joe Biden carried. Um, I mean, they got to be real careful about re-election and doing the right thing and all these. Um, do the right thing, get re-elected. <laughs> Tell you what a member of Congress is more interested in, getting re-elected. We'll worry about doing the right thing um, sooner than later. That's the, I guess, holding Congress, holding the House accountable is easier because you don't have six years between asking the people to vote for you. It's every two years. You're always running for office. You're always worried about the um, the next election. There's a little beauty in that. I mean, there's a little um, accountability in that. The Senate can hide for a couple of years. We know the story with Lindsey Graham. You know, a lot of South Carolinians get mad with Lindsey, and then Lindsey seems to clean it up, you know, as it gets closer and closer to an election. Six-year Senate terms allow you to, um, to do that. Once again, um, what is the optimal temperature of the planet Earth? I mean, that seems like a very simple question. Um, that's where you start, to me, on the debate about climate change. I don't have the answers. I don't know the answers. I don't know what um, the optimal temperature of the planet Earth is. And if you don't, I don't know how we argue whether the climate's too hot, too cold, needs to be changed one side or the other. The, 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 the similar question regarding the Bidens is how do they get wealthy? They don't have a business. Their business is largely LLCs and mailboxes. I mean, that's kind of sort of what they've done. And the majority of, uh, of money that has been dispersed and transferred has been designated loan repayments. I mean, at 90% of the checks that Sarah Biden has written, and I've seen photocopies of probably 20 or 25, um, and every check she has written, I showed you a copy yesterday mm-hmm. of an article I read in uh, Real Clear Politics, and it shows a photocopy, a $400,000 check from Sarah and Jim Biden to Joe Biden, $400,000, I'm sorry, $40,000. It was about two days after a wire transfer from Burisma made its way into the, you know, the Biden accounts. And um, that's just, the, these, the, you know, that's their business. And I, and I made a note yesterday, and I'll read it again today because I, um, I think it's the elevator spiel. And I hope that Republicans can get their hands around this. $24 million from foreign entities paid into camouflaged accounts controlled by Biden family members. And then you've got, um, I think, some of, the, um, some of the activity in these accounts triggered north of 100 suspicious um, activity reports. That would kind of be the, uh, the second part. But I think the, 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 the elevator speech is $24 million from foreign entities paid into camouflaged accounts. That's their business. I mean, their business is LLCs, um, mailboxes, and, you know, a variety of Biden family members receiving checks that are basically designated loan repayment. I read, I mean, I read this uh, yesterday, and I don't know if you think there's anything to this. They talked about Hunter going and then not showing up at the Capitol. And then I think a reporter had asked the White House spokesperson about that and asked them if, if Joe Biden knew that he was going to do that, and I think they answered yes, they 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 did. And so what I've read is, you know, that shows a little bit of coordination. There better be. And collusion. But it, they, they better be. 
I mean, there better be coordination. I mean, the left hand better know what the right hand's so doing. Because ultimately, they're investigating a tie to Joe Biden. Sure. So, so if they're talking about it, if, if if Hunter Biden and they admit it, if Hunter Biden refused the the to be deposed and the White House didn't know about it, that would alarm me. I mean, if I'm trying to coordinate, I mean, you, look, guys, it's not about what's right or wrong. That's what you've got to understand. We have this belief that Washington operates on what's right and wrong. It's self-preservation and self-advancement. That's all the city's about. It's not about right or wrong. It's never been about right or wrong. The never-Trumper in general. And here's the deal. 95% of the most powerful people in America oppose Donald Trump, both Republican and Democrat. Do you believe that 95% of the most powerful people in America oppose Donald Trump because they think he's bad for the country or bad for their business? I mean, this is not an ideological struggle. This is doing the right thing, running into self-preservation, self-advancement, getting paid by fleecing the government. That's what we're dealing with. Is Trump a disruptor? I don't know. I don't have any idea. We know he's disrupted the way you run for office. But, I mean, I think we would all agree his, his, um, his time as president was not that disruptive. I mean, he was a tax-cutting, deregulating right-of-center Republican, kind of a pro-business Republican. I mean, those are a dime a dozen. It is, the, it is the belief that Trump could eventually usher in a disruptive and revolutionary moment in American politics that threatens the existence and livelihoods of those who have fleeced our government to their advantage. It's never been about right and wrong. I mean, when Paul Ryan says he must be stopped, he's a, he's a demagogue, he's a, he's a narcissist, he's a threat to democracy, Paul Ryan has a deal. And his deal is not based on right or wrong, it's based on power and influence. I mean, the Lincoln Project, I mean, all, every one of those guys have been, they've made a living not building witches, but, but assuming power, influence, and, and notoriety in the halls of Congress. They believe that Trump could potentially usher in a disruptive moment in American politics that changes their world forever. And if you want to be honest with yourself, if you're not one of the 95% most powerful people in America, you should be for Trump. I mean, that's, that's reason enough. Yes, he's a narcissist. Yes, he's been bankrupt in several business deals. Yes, he's a mixed bag on policy. But 95% of the most powerful people in America are trying to stop him actively and passionately oppose his uh, trying to become president, that's good enough for you if you're not one of the most powerful Americans to be loud and proud in your support of Donald Trump. Let's go to the phone. Charles in Lamarck. Morning, Charles. Good morning. You know, Bobby Petrino needs to be a part of the Lincoln Project. I think they're all sleaze together down in the bottom of the swamp. These are, uh, uh, I don't, I don't, think a whole lot of them you made a comment a couple of weeks ago ken that most of the time when people talk to you they don't have a clue what they're talking about and uh, i hope that um sometimes i'm not in that category but i do want to respond to a, a couple of phone calls you've received the last couple of days and uh one of the one of the things that i'd like to point out is that when gas went from a dollar sixty-one a gallon, which is what I paid at Shell Station in Darlington on South Main Street on Election Day, 2020, November 3rd, 2020, a dollar sixty-one point nine. When it went up to four dollars and fifty cents, 
Biden was not responsible for one bit of that. It just happened. But now that it's down to 260, of course, he is responsible for it coming down. That's some of the uh, idiocy that we that we hear sometimes. Another thing that I'd like to point out is that a woman in the United States of America can get an abortion up until the due date today in this country. She may have to travel a little bit. She may have to inconvenience herself. But abortion has not been outlawed. And when these people call and throw these points out there, I think that it's important that we provide counterpoints and try to provide some facts. But that's just uh, two things that that I heard from a caller in the last two days that I just felt like I had to respond to. Hope you all have a great weekend. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. And that's why I trust the audience. I mean, I don't trust my crowd at the gym. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't. I mean, when I bump into them and we start talking politics, I'm like, holy crap. I mean, you know, wow, okay. Um, no, that's why I trust these listeners. I mean, not only do you inspire me to try and be better at this job, and I'm not blowing smoke. I'm being as serious as I can be. You guys inspire me to be better at this. I mean, you motivate me to want to make a difference and try and make I can relate to Limbaugh. I really and truly can on a much lesser degree. But when somebody offers up, a point that I think is inconsistent with the truth. I trust the callers to take them to task. So, so, so no, in no way, shape or form do I believe this universal listeners don't know what they're talking about. We have a variety of opinions and we'll disagree and we'll get it wrong at times. I mean, rest assured, we're not going to be perfect about our opinions and our articulation of those opinions. But when I say some of the people I bump into don't know what they're talking about, I mean, it's, it's outside of this radio audience. I mean, you folks are not only intelligent, you've chosen to be more informed than most. So, yes, when someone calls in and says something that you believe is inaccurate, you don't believe is true, 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. A.G. Allen Wilson, South Carolina Attorney General Allen Wilson, will be with us at about 742 or 3 this morning. Another good get for No Shot. Josh, let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Here's Breeze. Good morning. Kid, you know, I hate to have to tell you this, but I swear, right before Charles called for that last 10 minutes, they ain't another damn commentator in America could have said it better than you did, brother. I mean, damn it, you nailed it. You flat nailed it. And I, I was just sitting there, I said, I hope somebody recorded that, that, last, that last segment of you talking, because you nailed everything that I believe. But I'll tell you another thing I was talking about. You were talking about traitors and talking about the vaccine. The Congress, the guy from Alabama, remember he was holding up promotions of uh, these Army generals and admirals and everything else about the, uh, about the government paying for service members' abortions. And then the Republicans all died on top of him and made him kind of basically cave. But there's another bill out there, and I have to give Ted Cruz credit for it, it says all of these service members that were forced to take the vaccine that you were talking about earlier today and yesterday, and I believe it 100% to be true, is causing young people to die. He has a bill out there that all of those people that were forced to resign for the military can get their back pay and be reinstated, and not one Republican is backing them. 
And that's what I'm talking about, traitors, my friend. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. And that goes to my point. That's why I'm leaving the Republicans in part of the conversation. I mean, Ken Langone's a Republican. Jamie Dimon, for the most part, is a Republican. I mean, he would be a different sort of Republican than most of us are. Well, he runs J.P. Morgan. He makes $20 million a year in stock options. I mean, obviously, he's a different kind of dude than, uh, than most of us are. But, but the point I'm trying to drive home, the point I want you to remember, and this would probably be a good theory in politics, if the powerful people are for it, you probably need to be against it. If the powerful people are against it, it's probably in your best interest to be for it. And I don't think I've ever seen an example in political history of this many powerful people so organized and passionate about making sure one guy doesn't get elected president of the United States. And it's not just the Democrats. I mean, it's a third of the Republicans. And it's not a third of the Republicans saying he ain't my guy. It's a third of the Republicans trying to convince other Republicans that this is not the guy. It's Paul Ryan. I mean, it's Mitt Romney. I mean, the, the embarrassment we should all shoulder, and I'm talking about Republican primary voters, we should be embarrassed that we allowed ourselves to be as misled for as long as we were misled. And the reality is, other than Donald Trump, the last Republican nominee of the Republican, excuse me, the, the last Republican nominee for president of the United States is now saying, I'll vote for the Democrat. But that's how wrong we were. That's how gullible we were. That's how misled we were. And I have no idea. I mean, I don't think we're dumb or stupid. I mean, that gullible, everybody's gullible to some degree, wanting to believe what you think you want to be true. I mean, we all are guilty of that. I mean, I want to believe certain things are true, and I know they aren't. But, but you know, you can, you can kind of get yourself confused in that moment. But the Mitt Romney was the last Republican nominee for president not named Donald Trump. Paul Ryan was the last Republican nominee for vice president, not named uh, Mike Pence. Yeah, Mike Pence. And even Pence. I mean, I think Pence has been somewhat neutral. I mean, he stays out of the way. You know, but Romney and Ryan are actively opposing Trump. Why? Because they believe he has bad ideology? No. They're powerful people. And their power depends on the system working a certain way. And they suspect. They're not sure of this. They suspect that Trump potentially ushers in a disruptive and uncertain period of time. They lose their influence. They lose their boats. They lose their planes. They lose their beach homes. They lose their recreational farms. They lose their third and fourth fun cars, Corvettes and Lamborghinis and, and all those sorts of things. They have fed at the trough of government. They have gotten unbelievably fat and happy, not making widgets, not being productive members of the economy, but playing the game of government. And they know that we're on to that now. I mean, you know, the Trump phenomenon is centered around drain the swamp, the game is rigged. I mean, why else would you vote for Trump? If you're a Trump voter, why else would you vote for Trump? He's such a moral and ethical man. I mean, he's an ideological heavyweight. He's a conservative warrior. No, you believe he's a wrecking ball. You believe that he will take um, a stick to the system. He will, you know, throw a bomb under the, um, the bathroom door. That's what you believe, and that's what we need. This is a revolution. It's not muskets and bayonets and Bunker Hill. 
But this is a revolution. We are at a revolutionary moment in American history. The powerless have found a crusader. And the the establishment, the powerful Republicans, powerful Democrats, powerful business people, powerful academics, powerful media, they see this guy as the first legitimate threat to their world order. They built a big-ass machine, and the machine creates prosperity for those who understand it, and it makes life more complicated and difficult for those who don't. That's where we are in America. This is not about ideology. This is not about conservative versus liberal, big government versus small government, lowering the debt or raising the debt. This is about a disruptive moment in American politics. And Steve Bannon said, if you think these people are going to give you your country back without a fight, you've got another thing coming. And we've seen to what extent and what extreme. And I'm telling you guys, if you were one of them, you'd be doing the same thing. If you had amassed enormous power, influence, prosperity, wealth, you would fight with everything you have to make sure that game doesn't change, to make sure the deck chairs stay where the deck chairs are because you put them there, and that's where they need to be to keep your boat afloat, your yacht afloat. I mean, we're keeping boats afloat. <laughs> they're keeping they're keeping yachts afloat. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Mike in Darlington. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Ken. I, I, I think with, without any other show, despite all the good broadcasts you've had, if this was rebroadcast as an educational piece, you would be educator of the decade. That would, be, uh, if you could get that rebroadcast over and over again, the last last uh, forty five minutes or so, it would be a service to the whole company, the country, and it would hopefully wake up some of these people that are sleepwalking into uh, uh, into a maelstrom. And they're just, uh, we're just waiting to crash the economy, trying to figure some useless project to spend money on that absolutely produces nothing for nobody except it gives a percentage to all these, uh, all, all these big wheels that, uh, and gives and, uh, supplements their privilege. On the other hand, they want to, they would just like to pin us up in an eight by 12 cell. And uh, probably in a in a box six feet underground. I don't think they'd even bury us now. I think they'd just uh, cremate us. But uh, that's another thing. But the, you're performing a real service to the community, and in uh, crystallizing the thoughts that a lot of people know, but they don't have. They're not articulate to express it. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Very kind. Um, I carry that burden honorably, right? I mean, after all, what, what are we, the, the, the fearless yeah. leader? Huh? Yeah. Yeah. I'm too dumb to be afraid. Something about a jungle yeah. of ignorance. I, I'm too, fr- I'm too dumb to be afraid and arrogant enough to think that I have some degree of leadership. Um, I guess qualities. it was, is appropriate. We should have played that, uh, that liner. It's called uh, the rejoiner yeah. a few minutes ago that said our standby, our fearless leader is about yeah. to speak. I, I'm, I'm good with all the other <laughs> self-deprecating liners, to be honest with you. Um, we got A.G. Allen Wilson on the other side. We'll take a break. We'll be back in a few moments. 843-661-0937. We got a caller. We'll go there. But if Wilson calls during this call, we'll have to abruptly end this call 
Go to the next um, caller. If you'll hang on, we'll get back to you if that happens. Let's go to the phone. Jacob and Florence. Hi, you're on. Yes, uh, gentlemen. Uh, good morning. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I'll be brief because, in fact, the reason why I'm calling is because of A.G. Wilson. So uh, a while ago, there was, a, there was a, a plan to enact ESG and make it mandatory. So I, I, if you, I know you have a lot of questions to ask them, but if you can just bring that uh, conversation up again. So ESG, for the audience that doesn't know, social governance, and it's, it's a Chinese credit social system that, that they're trying to stealthily push on, on uh, residents here in South Carolina. So if you could just ask them, uh, I'd appreciate it, and uh, you know, I'll be listening uh, throughout the day. Thank you. And appreciate show, that. By the way. Thank have you. Thank you very much. Appreciate the call. Appreciate the, um, the input. And, um, yeah, the environmental social governance standards, um, but basically, I, I don't know, the government scores business a certain way if it honors certain big government and ambitious ideas. I didn't say commitments, ideas that the government has about the way business is to, is to behave. That's kind of an interesting quandary a lot of us find ourselves in, the relationship of government and business. I mean, we fundamentally change that relationship I guess, Rev, in mine in your lifetime, and I don't, you know, I, we've lived in the era of the big deal, or excuse me, the new deal, but the new deal was not new, quote unquote. What happened in 08 when the world blew up and some of what the government did in propping up, supporting, aiding, assisting, involving itself in, uh, in the government, I think quantitative easing probably had as much to do with inflation today as Nixon in 73, you know, I mean, the way you and I would characterize it as taking us off off the gold standard, I think they're very similar um, one to another. And when you look at the rampant inflation, we're talking about, um, I mean, I went last night somewhere. I don't do this much, but Thursday night, I'm by myself. My wife had some other things to do. I sit down at a um, uh, at a Mexican restaurant. I went there because Mexicans are, I mean, the Mexican restaurant's normally fairly cheap. You and I have talked a little bit about that. You seem mm-hmm. like you can get, and they give you the chips and salsa that you don't <laughs> have to pay for. I mean, I know you're paying for it in, in, in a direct way. Uh, it was about $4 more than I expected it to be. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not knocking them. They got to do what they got to do. And they've got the cost of food and the cost of labor and the cost of power, and the cost of, of insurance and all these other things that go into the, um, expenses of running a business. But, um, I mean, it, it was, I expected one price and it was about three or $4 more. You figure in a little tip and I, it was, it was a friendly reminder of why, uh, I'm going home to eat and try to <laughs> you know maintain some discipline, uh, but that's not good for restaurants. And we need restaurants to be busy and make a profit and, you know, feed people and, and contribute to the economy and contribute to the community and, um, and all this inflation. And it's kind of interesting. Um, Williams was talking about the economy. Charles, I, I think, was directing some of his comments toward, obviously, uh, what Williams and some others have said. It seems to me the Biden economic plan has been reduced to a bunch of eggheads quoting economic indicators heavily influenced by spin. The only, the only economic indicator that matters, guys, is affordability. I mean, if you're an economist, I mean, if you're, a, you're kind of a banker, I mean, yeah, of course there's some other things to consider and take into account. But if you're not one of those, the, the, primary, the primary reality you're living in is the economy affordable or not. And I've read, you know, data point after data point after data point about housing is more unaffordable than it's ever been. Food is more unaffordable than it's ever been. So yes, I mean, if the if the Biden economic plan has been reduced to eggheads and economic indicators, 
and they're not talking at all about affordability, that is very much a headwind for the Democrats and a tailwind um, for the Republicans. I'm a little bit like David Axelrod. I probably wouldn't talk about the economy very much <laughs> if I were um, Joe Biden. I think we have the Attorney General of South Carolina, Alan Wilson, is with us. Alan, good morning. How are you? Hey, Ken, good morning. Great to be with you, sir. Absolutely. Appreciate you taking a few moments this morning. I want to get your opinion. Jay Jordan will be here in just a bit, and Jay's been heavily involved in the Judicial Merit Selection Commission. I know you have a fairly strong opinion. Alan, Jay and I have talked a lot on the air and off the air. What is the best of the bad ways to elect judges in South Carolina? You shared a, I mean, do you care to share your opinion? You're our, our, our chief lawyer. You're our, our chief law enforcement officer. Do you care to share your opinion on where you stand in regards to changes or not to the Judicial Merit Selection Commission? Absolutely, Ken. First off, the way you framed it, the best of the bad ways, is kind of interesting because what I've told people as I've traveled the state, there is no perfect way to do it. You know, what I'm advocating for, I don't pretend to tell people it's going to fix every problem or address every issue. But what it's going to do is it's going to address the inequity and imbalance of power that currently resides in our current system for electing judges. You know, everyone who's ever made it through third grade civics knows that there's three branches of government and that those three branches of government work best together when there's equal tension between them. You know, separation and checks and balances. Uh, These are foundational tenets in our government. Well, in the process for electing judges, Ken, the executive branch, that's the branch that the governor and the sheriffs and the attorney general and the solicitors and all of us that enforce the laws reside in, there is no check on the judicial branch of government. The judicial branch of government, excuse me, the executive branch of government has no role in checking the powers of the judicial branch of government. The way we currently elect judges is through the system called the Judicial Merit Selection Commission, the JMSC. It's a 10-member commission comprised of Six legislators appointed. By the way, all ten members are appointed by the leadership of the General Assembly. Six of those ten members are actually sitting members of the General Assembly, but all ten are appointed by the General Assembly. That commission vets and selects the nominees of people who apply to be judges, and it sends three nominations. There could be 20 people who apply for a judgeship, but they select their three and they send them to the General Assembly to be voted on, and the General Assembly then votes on the three that the JMSC sends them. So the, the, the legislature controls the vetting of the nomination – of the candidates, rather, the selection and the election of them, and then ultimately controls the budgets of the judiciary. Nowhere in that process is the executive branch involved. Now, let me say this. Uh, Representative Jordan and I are good friends. I think he's a fantastic legislator, and I have a lot of friends in this issue have different points of view, and we've had very robust debates. and. Reasonable people can have different points of view on this, and I don't think people are bad because they disagree with me on this. But my whole point is I represent the executive branch, and what I would like to see done is for equity of power in the, in the system of government. If you can don't like the type of judges that are coming out that are affecting um, you know, outcomes in the criminal justice system or, or in the business arena, you can vote for or against your House member and senator. But there's 168 other people who get to vote on those judges. So you as a citizen have really no voice in how judges are selected. If you know power has been consolidated in the legislative branch of government, but accountability has been dispersed, it's really hard to hold a branch accountable. I was talking to a friend the other day who does recruitment for businesses around the world to try to bring businesses to South Carolina. 
he says that he, as he travels the country, he's talking to commerce departments in other states who, tell, who are telling companies, CEOs, and the CEOs are telling him this, that they say don't go to South Carolina because of, of their, litigate, their judicial environment. Now, that, that, that's a perception issue. I'm not saying we have a bad judicial environment. What I'm saying is, is that people are using our system for electing judges against us to dissuade businesses from coming here. So we're trying to send a message to address that imbalance. And my, my, my prescription for this is the following. The JMSC should be a standalone commission. It shouldn't be housed with the General Assembly. The commission members should be appointed by the governor, at least a majority, if not all, but a majority of them. And the cap of three people that are submitted should be removed. If there's 10 people who are qualified, let the legislature vote on all of them by ballot if possible. Um, these would be a great way to start reforming how we elect judges. So, Alan, how does that happen? I mean, I, I, I tend to agree with you, and, I, and I've debated some of my buddies in the House that um, I'd like to see the executive branch have more influence and say and sway in that system. But, but how does that happen? I mean, obviously, asking people in power to give up that power is a, is a hard sale. Well, first off, the, the state constitution says there must be a JMSC, a Judicial Merit Selection Commission. It says it must exist and that it must submit nominations to the legislature and that the legislature must vote on those nominations. It doesn't say who sits on the JMSC or in what order the nominations go. You could have a, someone could pass a law. Uh, statutorily, you don't have to change the Constitution that says, hey, the makeup of the JMSC is now going to be made by the governor or, you know, a majority by the, you know, six by the governor, you know, four by the General Assembly. I mean, you could you could make it whatever you wanted to. You could you could remove the JMSC statutorily and put it as a separate commission where it's separate line of funding, separate staff. The staff don't report to the legislature. They report to the commission members. At the end of the day, the legislature gets the final say. They can still vote as mandated by the Constitution. But these reforms don't need to be overhauled in, like, by amending the Constitution. They can be made simply by uh, you know, statutory tweaks here and there. And this would be a great first step, um, and th this is what I've been advocating for. Very well explained. That, that is very well explained. How can the public help you accomplish this goal? Well, I mean, first off, if, one of the per first pushbacks I get when I talk to legislators is the people who don't support reform. They say, Alan, we've looked at this. We don't think that reform is things that our, that our constituencies care about. Um, you know, we polled judicial reform. But when I go around the state and I talk to people about judicial reform, what I've learned is, is that they care a lot about it, but when they're being polled, they don't know what judicial reform is. So it doesn't register as high as, say, taxes or national security or immigration or federal overreach or abortion or whatever your issue is. It just doesn't register in a polling question. But when you sit down with people and have a conversation, they're like, wow, my goodness, Alan, this is a, this is a big deal. And so let your legislator know. They, you know. Many of these folks, good people in the General Assembly, they'd probably be more for it if they realize their, their citizens cared about it. And I do want to say one thing, Ken. There are a lot of reasonable people in this debate, and you know, there, there are lawyer legislators that I'm friends with who are very much in favor of reform. There are some who are concerned and skeptical of reform because they're afraid it might lead to something worse, and I respect their point of view. But there is a path forward, and uh, one last thing I want to say is I went and spoke to the Speaker of the House at the beginning of the year, uh, Merle Smith. Merle's a dear friend, and um, you know, as a leader of the body, and I, I want people to know this, the legislature – has, the leaders of the legislature have been very open to hearing our concerns and giving us a, a way to voice our concerns. And so 
Speaker Smith told me at the beginning of the year he'd create a process for, for how people with dissenting viewpoints could come together to study this issue, to come up with a, a way forward, and he kept his word. And I, you know, I, I'm grateful to him and other I – mean, Jay Jordan and I have had a number of conversations, uh, Mike Rickenbaugh and other members of your delegation. We've had great conversations, and uh, these are people I respect a lot, and I think we can find common ground and move forward. Well explained. Alan, thank you for your time, my man. Have a great weekend, and if we don't talk before, Merry Christmas to you and your family. Merry Christmas to you too, Ken. God bless you. Thank you very much. Talking Judicial Merit Selection Commission um, with uh, A.G. Allen Wilson. Uh, I, I knew that he had been fairly aggressive in trying to figure out a, a compromising way way forward. Um, I mean, I've made it clear. Jay and I have debated this on the air. Philip and I, Mike and I have debated on and off the air about what best serves the constituency of, uh, of South Carolina. And at the end of the day, I think that's what we're we're all about. Um and I don't think anybody, I mean, some are, some are accusing or making accusations that, you know, the good old boy system on full display. I think the good old boy system is always going to be a part of um, politics in America, uh, unless there are ladies involved, then it'll be the good old girl system. Um, I mean, it's just called the back scratching phenomenon. You scratch mine, I scratch yours, you give me this, I give you, I give you that bartering, negotiating, compromising is a um, a part of the DNA of American politics, and I don't know that that will will ever change. I mean, the Constitution is called the Great Compromising Document for a reason. I mean, nobody got their way, but I do believe, and I'm on the record that I think the executive branch has needs to have more say so in our judicial system in South Carolina. I think uh, it's overweighted to the legislature, and I say that knowing that members of the General Assembly will be here in about five or ten minutes. Uh, no hard feelings with me. I don't think. They have any hard feelings, and they'll accept, uh, you know, the best of the bad ways is what. And that's fundamental to the debate. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Takes Mondays to make Fridays 843-661-0937. This will be the next-to-last show we do before the end of the year. Um, uh, Senator Mike Rickenbaugh, thanks, on the phone. Am I right? Mike, are you there? Good morning. Good morning, sir. How are you? Yeah, he's in Columbia, um, politicking. Representative Lowe and Jordan are in the studio. Um, I want to begin, uh, we'll get to some of the issues and subjects at hand. I think these guys want to talk a little bit about the Judicial Merit Screening or Selecting um, Committee and what their opinions are and where they go from there. Mike, you care to give an opinion? We had A.G. Wilson with us before the la- or the end of the last hour, and he wants to see more executive abilities. He wants to see the governor and the executive branch more involved in picking um, judges, you care to give your opinion on that? Well, the, the timing is perfect, Ken, because uh, we're at the, the Senate Republican Caucus uh, planning session here um, today in the last two days, um, preparing for the, the January session next month. And there's really three primary points that, that the, the Senate Republicans uh, want to take up when, as soon as we get back. Of those three, uh, judicial reform is one of them. The other two would be uh, medical marijuana and constitutional carry. So those are the three bills, and I'd certainly love to hear the, your insight or the caller's insights on any of those three, because between the 30 Republican senators, there's a pretty big array of, of differences of opinion on medical marijuana, on constitutional carry, and then on judicial reform. But in particular, I agree with uh, with A.G. Wilson, uh, myself, and Chairman of Senate Finance, Harvey Peeler, both think that while there isn't a great way for judicial ref- uh, selection, um, our way could be made better. Um, not perfect, but could be made better. Um, again, and I have so much respect from my, my friend Jay there, and we've had this conversation many times. 
the JMSC has a tough job to do, but it's tough to be a lawyer legislator when, when you are making a selection on a judge and then you are trying a case before that judge. I think there's ways and talking to people that they could have, they would like to see more transparency and more accountability. And I think re, revisiting the makeup of the JMSC, so the executive branch has more input, um, is, is an idea worthwhile. Jay, and I'll go back to you. I mean, you know more about this than anybody I know. You don't read about it. You don't talk about it. You live it. I mean, you live it in the first person. You are one person who decides whether this person becomes a judge or not. I know how serious you take that. So, so yeah, I have an opinion. I write about it. I talk about it. I have conversations with other people about it. You live it. You, you've said something to me that makes more sense than anything else about this entire process. What is the best of the bad ways? I mean, there is no great way to do what we're trying to do. And, and you said very emphatically, the application of justice is the most important thing government does. We do decide tax rates and we do build highways and we do fund higher education, but we decide who gets treated fairly or not in our judicial system. And that, that is paramount to any, anything else. So you are my go-to guy. It is a hard subject to address and correctly identify what needs to be done or doesn't need to be done or who needs to be in charge, who doesn't need to be in charge. So that's exactly right. When you live in a country and you say, you know, at the top of our value list is freedom and liberty. Um, you don't get the den to then say that, that the justice process and the administration of justice. And when you take away someone's freedom is not paramount on the, that list as well as, as to the function of government. So as a result of that, I, I think you need to constantly be examining, as we do in all areas of government or should in all areas of government, how we're doing it. Can we do it better? Um, you know, that, that's just a, should be a natural product of the function of government. And I think that's what you, what you're you seeing right now. You're seeing folks um, bring this issue to the forefront. Um, I think the attorney general said, uh, as I've tried to watch some of the committee hearings that have been held over the last 30, 45 days or so, uh, the House appointed an ad hoc committee, a lot of different types of folks, some lawyers, some non-lawyers, um, some former law enforcement folks to sit on that committee and to give folks that have questions and concerns about the process the ability to come before that committee and air it all out. And they've done that over, uh, like I said, multiple sessions now for hours. I think I tried to start watching the last meeting, and it was about a seven-hour meeting. So it, it's there's no doubt the process is being dug into. And I have no, no issue with that. I, I think that's a very good thing. Um, I do think we need to take our time and make sure we get it right. Again, back to that. If you're, if this is the most important thing we do, we need to get it right. Um, I think some valid concerns have absolutely been brought to the table. I don't have an objection to, um, the executive branch having some form of participation in the process. Now I will say, um, and, and this is not an admonishment or a criticism of anyone in particular. I am against this becoming a political issue. I think that's a dangerous situation to go down. And it um, seems to be more political now than it's ever been. It, it does seem to be that way. Um, when you when when you want to run for office, you have to identify issues, and then you have to um, explain to the public and the, why those issues are important and why your plan is better than others. Um, and, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I don't know that starting a fire or saying there's a fire, and, you know, I'll give you one point, and, and this is not a criticism directly of, of, of the attorney general. I think he's done a, a good job in a lot of ways, but I did hear this morning, for instance, um, the economic development issue that they're 
commerce, that just doesn't make any sense. Um, and I've, you know, look around the state of South Carolina. We are absolutely booming with economic development. Um, I think people vote with their feet, so to speak. Business votes with their feet. And if there was, if we had an issue with commerce and economic development, there wouldn't be a, the, you know, announcement after announcement after announcement across the state of South Carolina um, as to that economic development. But on the other hand, I absolutely think there are some very valid concerns raised. Uh, and I think the attorney general has raised those concerns and has worked hard to travel this state and communicate with a lot of different folks from law enforcement to solicitors, uh, to Republican party meetings and so forth. And so that there is a, an appetite to, to look at the issue. Now, the other thing I'll say, I think it would be a tremendous mistake. You know, we're, we're focusing a lot on JMSC and that's, that's a, not a bad thing. But we also need to focus on magistrate reform. The governor came out not too long ago and said how we do the magistrate selection process is insane based on the, um, the current uh, time we live in. One senator basically getting a rubber stamp from the governor without any kind of review process um, it doesn't make any sense to me when a magist the magistrate court is where the majority of South Carolinians, if they're going to engage in the judicial process, is probably going to be in the magistrate court. And then you've got the other end of the spectrum with the Supreme Court. Um, I think we need to look at the, um, the, the type Supreme Court we have. We have a five-panel Supreme Court. I don't know that that makes sense, that three people, you know, in some sense – can be from Greenville, South Carolina. You can get three judges out of Greenville, and they can make an up-end policy established by the entire General Assembly and approved by the governor. I think we need to look at um, maybe expanding that court to, or at least have the discussion of taking it from why, five to seven. Why is there not seem to be as much concern about the magistrate side of this as much as there does, um, I, I guess, the, the the family courts, the appellate courts and whatnot? Why, why are we not as interested in, in the magistrates or don't seem to be? That's a question I've wondered about since the in, in you know since we started talking about this process a, a year or so ago, um, I can't really answer that. I think that's a better question for the folks that are. But but I think the argument I'm trying to make and and, and low jump in. I mean the argument I'm trying to make, Jay, is we can debate how to elect judges. We're not doing right electing magistrates. I mean that there there's obviously a better way to do that. So 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 I guess if we're going to identify the bigger problem and the more prevalent problem, to me the magistrates. I can defend what you guys do, or I can I can throw rocks at it. I mean, that's pretty easy to do where I see it. Uh, it's more complicated where you see it. There's no defense of how we choose magistrates in South Carolina today. Well, again, go back to – I'm just saying we don't need to grab one hold of this piece uh, of, the, of the pie and leave the rest of it sitting there. I'm all for looking at, as we are doing, should we consider adding more executive input into the process. But when you step back and look at how we, and I say we in the legislature and pointing to Philip and Mike, um, if you want to be a circuit judge, a family court judge, a, an appellate judge of any kind, first you have to apply. Then you go before the citizens committee where, where the citizens of your area get the opportunity to come in and ask questions. Then when you get past that, you go before the bar committee. Lawyers that are appointed and regionalized get to ask questions of these judges. Then when you get past that, you go before the JMSC you get a whole nother level of selection and screening and you're identified as whether you're competent and qualified and ready to, and then after that you go to the general assembly. So with a magistrate, it's just, can you want to be a magistrate? I'm a Senator sign you up and you want to talk about conflict. Thank you for helping me win my election. And you want to talk about conflict. If you're a lawyer, Senator going in front of the, the magistrate that you are the only one with your hand on the appointment signature, um, 
that gives me some concern as well. And again, that's a, not a direct criticism. We got a lot of good magistrates in this sure. state um, that do a wonderful job. There's a job. better way to pick them. There's got to be. There, there's got to be a better. Yeah. Philip, you want to jump in? Mike, sure. I'm sorry. Mike, you want to jump in? And then I'll, I'll t- defer to Philip. There's got to be. There's got to be a better way. I've uh, made no secret of how disappointed I am in the magistrate selection process, and I've aired that several times on the radio. And I so agree with Jay. And, and fortunately, there's more acceptance now that we've got to make magistrate a topic of conversation. There are 353 magistrate judges in South Carolina. If you look at the family court, appellate court, circuit court, and supreme court combined, there's only 120. There's almost three to one magistrates, yet we allow them to go through almost unvetted to a large degree. So uh, myself and Chairman Peeler, if anybody is interested, if you look at Senate Bill 482, that's the bill uh, he and I co-sponsored in the Senate. We filed it this this year, and we're going to push for it this coming January when we get back to completely overhaul how magistrates are selected so that there's more rigor. Transparency and accountability is what people want. So 482, I think, is a big step. Because then it's going to bring in Jay and Philip and the House members, along with the Senate members, to make sure that we accurately vet magistrates and then there's accountability for them. Representative Lowe? Well, I'm fine with the executive giving them a few more votes on the selection committee. This coming election, Mike would have basic control of the magistrates. I'd be happy with that. I know Mike's character. I think he'd do a great job picking them. Uh, but after after you, you look at all this and you say, what do you want to do about all the, the other judges? First of all, the chief Matt, the chief uh, judge of the Supreme Court is responsible for picking the chief magistrates. And so that's kind of what I think we're dealing with here. There's been a nationwide move towards allowing a little more crime. And I would say he fell into that. And, and we have less bail, bonds, all that stuff that, that really helped to hold people and keep them in jail. And we were soft on crime. Yeah, we, we weren't soft on it. So that would change. Right now, we're changing him out. I mean, it's time for him to retire. We're going to put a new one in. It's happening this year. And so that would start to improve. The whole judicial system, I think, is starting to improve. Republicans are now looking at where these judicial candidates donate their money to the candidates, and we're looking at how they've been voting in Republican presidential primaries. So we're learning a little bit about how they think in a different way now, and I've been pushing that, and and we've made a lot of progress in that, and and we're looking at these judges differently. But I want to talk about the general election of a judge, where he's going to have a billboard out there getting campaign contributions and all that. This year alone, this is one year, there's 36 total judge races up at the Statehouse that we've got to figure out. 16 of them are competitive, which means they've got people opposing each other. There's 41 different judges that we've got to learn about and make a decision about in those 16 races. Now, are you telling me the general public's going to engage and, and learn about 41 different people and make good decisions on that? You know, and you want to criticize lawyers for being involved with this? Good Lord, if you don't have the lawyers involved in it, how do you know what you're getting. You've got to have people that understand the judicial system. We're not, as lay people, going to really understand the nuances of 41 different people. We can't go that route. Our route that we have now is better, and I'm going to tell you, it's going to get better because we're getting more and more conservative judges. Of course, that's from the conservative viewpoint. Well explained. Mike, you want to add anything? I know you got to take it. you got to get out of here and do your thing, but um, you want to add anything before we take our break? 
No, I think this is this is good. I'm really glad you were taking the time to, to talk about it because I think the voters and the constituents need to, to weigh in. Okay. Thank you, Mike. Have a good day and a good weekend. We'll, right, so, we'll hope to see you next Friday. Josh, we'll take a break. See you, we'll Mike. be back in just a couple of moments. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. Senator Rickenboss not with us, with us any longer. Representative Lowe, Representative Jordan here. Um, I know we're going to call them. We'll get there in two seconds. Bear with me. So I believe that one of the one of the things we're overlooking, and I want to get your two guys' opinion on this, the General Assembly rewards seniority. Whether you like it or not, it does. Washington rewards seniority. Politics in general reward seniority. There are many Republicans in senior positions, not as many as once, but there still are, that came to Columbia or went to Columbia as Democrats. We're in a generational change. Some of the Republican leadership got elected as Democrats. Now we're beginning to see true-believing conservative Republican leadership, and that's going to lead to kind of kind of a generational shift or change. Is that fair, Representative Lowe? It is. It's changing now. Like I said, we only have five judges on the Supreme Court, and one's leaving, and we've got to replace that one next year, but we're moving a, a very conservative judge to the top. That's going to help with our magistrate situation. And we're going to start getting decisions that are five to one or five to zero or, or four to one instead of narrow two to three, three to two, one way or the other. It's changing. And that took a while because those judges are elected for 10 years. And generally, you just don't go in and remove them. So they're in there for maybe 20 years. If they got in when they were 50 years old, they can serve till they're 72. Then they're in there for 20 years, and that we're just moving those guys out. And what I'll say is give us a chance. We're going to make ground right now, conservative judges, top to bottom, and we're going to improve in a magistrate too. And, and Jay, when I was presiding over the Senate a decade ago, it dawned on me one morning that every senior Republican in leadership got elected as a Democrat. I mean, that's not the case now, but it was then, and that's a slow generational sort of shift. Sure, and especially in the Senate where it truly is a seniority-dominated process. You know, you become the chairman of the committee when you're the longest-serving member of that committee. Transition over to the House is a little bit different over in the House where you have to get the committee to elect you as chair of that committee. So it's a little different in that process. So you can see shakeup. The other thing that the House is a little different in, um, Philip might have these stats better than me, but we turn over a lot quicker. Um, you know, the, the last, I think this freshman class of the house is 24 or five, something like that, which is a, not a, a high, which is a very high number, but it's not an unusually anomaly. Um, so we we're the house is turning over. And I say that to say, um, takes a little bit while you, you saw this, Ken, I'm sure Philip saw this back in time. I'm sure Mike, Mike has told me he's, he's seen this. Um, when you first get there, you're learning the process learning the nomenclature, learning, you know, everything you need to know about serving. And it takes a little bit of time to get acclimated. So there, there's different types of issues you have to deal with, House versus Senate. But then to the judiciary point, to your point about, um, you know, we elect circuit and family, and uh, I think every six years, Supreme Court every 10. So there is a certain amount there as well of, you know, once a judge is in the system and process, um, and you, if you're trying to make the system more conservative, as we have been, um, Philip before me and now myself for a while, and Mike, it takes some time to filter through that process. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jim and Florence. Jim, you are on with the delegation. Hey, good morning. Um, morning. 
thank God for Mississippi, right? Except when it comes to violent crime. So Mississippi um, ranks 38th in violent crime, while we rank 8th in violent crime, according to, I think, the 2020 statistics. Um, when we look at when we look at judges, I think the biggest issue, one, we don't have 30-something magistrates. We really have one magistrate who's Donald Beatty who tells all the magistrates and controls what they do through the court administration. So we've really got to dig in deep to that, you know, and we talk about how the magistrates are the number one way the constituents are going to see the judiciary. Well, let's go back to what we used to do in this state was elect magistrates. Um, one of the biggest things of how states put uh, judges all the way from the bottom to the top on the ballot is the elected leadership in, in the state government, somehow or another, some form or fashion, puts a judge on the bench. But for that judge to stay on the bench after his term of office, he's got to go on the ballot, and the constituency gives him an up or a down vote. I don't understand why we can't do that. That way at least gives everybody a say. Y'all tell us who who is good enough to be on the bench, but we say, hey, you know, uh, Bentley Price isn't exactly putting criminals in jail long enough. Maybe we should take him off. Now, I, I think what it, it the issue, too, is with that is, Jay, you being a, a lawyer legislature and being on the being on the JMSC, you shouldn't be deciding – or you should be presenting a case in front of a judge, and then the next day he's coming into the, the um, chambers to to, tell, to try to go back on the bench, and you give him an up or down vote. That just it doesn't doesn't sit well with the constituency. And I will say this: I I agree with y'all's decision on Bentley Price. It was a good decision, but I have to wonder: are these good decisions coming? because of the heightened scrutiny of how we pick judges in this state. And I can agree with you all, but also disagree with the method in which it was done. Um, so I think we have to answer some key questions, which is why are we so lagging behind in violent crime when our two closest states, our border states, North Carolina and Georgia, are middle of the pack, so they have similar de demographics. Um, I don't think we can address violent crime without repealing the 2010 Sentencing Reform Act that was presented by a Democrat senator who's still up there. Um, we've got to look at the whole totality, but we got to give people a say. And I think the way we keep judges on the bench has to go in front of the people. A lot of other states do it. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, and it would allow some transparency and take some heat off of you guys. So thank you. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. The only thing I'll add, and Philip, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just don't want Jim to leave the phone. I think he's already gone. Still Jim, there, Jim? Yeah, Jim, Jim does that pretty. Yeah, he's. Yeah. Thank no, you, no. and I'm out. Um, but I, I guess if you don't want a, a lawyer to, to influence what the court is made up of, then what happens when it's a medical bill? Do you not want the doctors to interact? Do you not want them to speak from the well? give their opinion, testify about their life's experience with medical bills, that you're getting ready to pass something that you know very little about. And a medical doctor stands up and talks to you up front and says, hey, let me tell you what's going to happen if we do this. It might be good, might be bad. But so 
you can't just cut them out of the process. They are the smartest ones about law, period. We've got to have some input from them. If this isn't it, what is it? But And I said during the break, guys, I mean, under the current construct, and I have problems with it, and Jay and Philip know I have problems with, um, I think it's heavily weighted to the, to the General Assembly. I think the executive branch deserves a little more influence. But, but there's no way that someone like me could become a judge via the Judicial Merit Selecting or Screening Committee. You give me a chance to run for office, I've been pretty good at that. Uh, you give me a chance to go ask people for money, put up billboards, do radio ads, do television ads, you know, give a stump speech here, there, and yonder. I've got no business being a judge or, or magistrate. None at all. None. Zero. But but you would, I, I just think publicly electing judges like members of the General Assembly dilutes some of the seriousness of the process. I understand what Jim's argument is. Now, now here's where I want to go. To me, what I'm hearing is, and I think the majority of South Carolinians don't really know this. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in South Carolina is a big deal. Um, that really sets a lot of the standard and, and direction and temperament of our magistrate system in South Carolina. You guys are fairly confident that you've made a decision that will lead to more competent magistrates, uh, less lenient sentences. Kind of, kind of. I mean, that's not a question, but give me some follow-up commentary to that. I'm hearing you guys say, and I'm hearing others say, this this transitioning from a not so conservative chief chief magistrate or excuse me chief justice who appoints the chief magistrates that could solve some of the problems. John Kitteridge is the only one running. He's going to be the next chief justice of the Supreme Court. He's a reasonable man, conservative person, and he knows that we're all complaining about our magistrate system. I think he's going to go in and. I won't say clean house, but I think he'll thoroughly examine what you have in each county and hopefully do a better job. Jay? I think that in conjunction with, you know, last year we passed the bond reform bill to deal with violent crime because that was something we were seeing all across the state and all across the country going back to that where we had gotten a little soft on crime, um, not letting someone get arrested for a violent crime, get rearrested, get bond out, then get rearrested for a violent crime, then bond right back out again. So this change in leadership that will be coming later in the year, hopefully con in conjunction with the bond reform, I think that'll give us an opportunity, at, you know, 6, 12, 18 months down the How road. How do you feel about the next Supreme Court justice, the chief justice? You know, I don't know that we've ever, ever had a, a technically more qualified candidate for chief justice. You know, John Kittredge, he's from the upstate. Um, he was a family court judge and then a circuit judge and then a court of appeals judge. Um, so he's seen every aspect of, you know, of the judiciary at that level in, in, across the state. And as a result of being those other, um, especially the family court and circuit court, he's traveled the state. He's held court all across the state of South Carolina. So, you know, he, he, is, a, he is a highly qualified conservative candidate for chief justice. Okay, let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. Our delegation hour brought to you by the John Fetterman Hoodie Company or the delegation hour brought to you by Greystone, right. uh, Greystone Properties. Thanks to Greystone for, uh, and this has been very interesting and enlightening because the majority of people don't know that the Supreme Court Chief Justice appoints all the chief magistrates. And when you've got a soft on crime Chief Justice, kind of this generational thing we're talking about, you're going to have soft on crime chief magistrates. We hope that is soon to be corrected. Let's go to the phone. Billy in Florence. Good morning. You are on with the delegation. 
Hey, good morning, guys. Great show as always. Um, I'm glad we're on the topic. Uh, I guess my my question to to the guys or or to um, to ask is, uh, you know, we have the right, or I guess the defendant does for the right for the speedy trial. But where's the victim's rights? Um, and I go an example is the uh, right here in Florence with the Fred Hopkins. I mean, this guy sit on 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 in jail for five years, you know, before it was ever brought up, and just just to plead out. You know, is that is that a shortfall on on the solicitor here, or is that the judge pushing the case back, or you know, is it a combination of things? Where where are we at? You know, as far as the victim, the advocate for the victim being here and and stretching these um, trials out, you know, three, four, five years. And uh, like I said, great show, and I'll hang up and listen to your comments. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Billy. Appreciate that. Great question, and I think that actually goes to the broader issue of judicial reform and. Where do the solicitors um, factor into this discussion? So forever and ever, the solicitor controlled the docket. The solicitor set the docket, said, you know, lawyers come to court, and the judge was the umpire and, and um, go forward. Things have been in flux. The Supreme Court has weighed in over that, and there's a little bit of uh, less clarity. There, there's The Supreme Court is trying to cure that now, and I think they've got their hands on that. Um, but there, there, it's a very valid concern. Um, I don't, I think it's hard to pick on one particular case. Everyone I know is, was frustrated in how long it took the Hopkins case to come to fruition. Um, the reality there, and again, I'm not on the inside of that and can't tell you all the specifics of it. I know there was a gag order in place. Um, they were concerned about, you know, attaining the, the, the jury pool, which I Practically speaking, I'm not sure how you can't take a jury pool when you have to go forward with that case in Florence. But beyond that, um, it does take too long at times to get a case, and you have a victim sitting over on the sideline. And just about the time they're about to get over it, or not get over it, but to, to sort of heal and begin the process of putting it behind them, the case is up for trial. And then they have to come to court and either A, stand there and, and tell the judge if they want to express their their feelings to the court um, in a plea hearing, um, or B, go to trial and actually testify if that if that individual is wanting a jury trial. Um, so they're absolutely – I'll give some credit. Um, there are some great folks that work in the solicitor's offices across the state, victims, coordinators, that um, I've, wor- I've seen a lot of them work over the years, and they, they genuinely care and do a really good job of trying to help people through that. So it's not so- – there, there is an individual – separate and apart from the actual solicitor and deputy solicitors and assistant solicitors who prosecute the cases to help in a lot of those situations. But just like you have good house members, good senators, good governors, good judges, you got good solicitors and you got bad solicitors. And so if you look across this state, you've got some um, circuits that have very significant, I'm talking years worth of backlog. And those individuals, those solicitors are elected by the people that they serve and represent in those those circuits, those counties. And so they, they need to be held accountable by those individuals. And then you have other circuits and counties that are r- efficiently run um, and successfully run. So it, it, it that aspect is a great issue to bring up, and that needs to be the solicitors and what their responsibility is in calling these cases and pushing these cases and trying these cases but needs to, to be addressed. But to Jim's point, that position is elected. Correct. That's absolutely correct. So that would be the, you know, the, okay, you want to elect judges and believe it's better. Well, there's a solicitor elected that, that some believe has not done, not executed the job as effectively as he or she should. And it's probably the most unique 
process we go through, you know, if you represent um, districts and, um, or counties, if you're a countywide elected official, you represent a circuit if you're a solicitor. So we're in the 12th circuit. That's Florence and Marion. Um, those circuits have been established for a very long time. That's probably something that need, we need to throw into this review process. Does the circuit system still function? You know, you've got a circuit like Florence and Marion, but then you got a circuit down with Charleston, Dorchester, and Berkeley. That doesn't make much sense to have th- – those aren't equal circuit sizes and, and operations. So maybe it's time to review um, the circuit process. Philip, you nor I are lawyers, but we're smart enough to know that taking that long to prosecute a cold-blooded killer is an insult to the family's rights. I mean, Jay gave a very articulate legal description of how it works. You and I aren't lawyers, but we know something stinks there. Now, you want to hear the straight talk now, right? All right. Look, it's obvious that he was guilty. And no question. We're not having a trial as to whether he's guilty or not. We all knew he's guilty. Five years is too long, simply too long. It's an insult to the family. Yes. I mean, it's an absolute insult to the family's rights, victims' rights, to, to, to watch that go on and on and on and on. As it, I found it disgusting. I mean, I, I really and truly did. We'll take a break. We'll come back with about, what, three or four minutes with our delegation back in a few. <laughs> okay, we've got the judicial system in South Carolina fixed. Let's talk presidential politics for a couple of minutes. Representative Philip Lowe, Representative Jay Jordan are here. Um, we are... The last couple of weeks of 2023, we'll elect a president in about 11 months from now. You see it how, Philip? Like I did six months ago, Biden will not be the nominee. He may actually win, but when they get to the convention, they go, yank that dude. And he is bad for business. I mean, literally bad for business. <laughs> and the pocketbooks are going to tell it. Now, the only thing that's scary a little bit there is is now they're saying, well, we won't have to raise interest rates, and they're going to try to get the economy flowing back again and it's it's probably ahead of time because we really haven't curbed inflation enough but i think they're trying to give him a chance and i think they're going to use that economy is getting better took a while for bidenomics to work see but we got to replace <laughs> that dude and they're going to get him out now who it'll be i don't know i i can't pick who they're going to pick. under any scenario does trump lose the primary Well, I mean, we're about to have a, a war over in Taiwan. I mean, I don't know. How, how will that be perceived? I, I, that's three. We can't fight in three I mean, different locations. I mean, you served with Nikki in the house, and she's had some momentum. We hear. I don't see it reflecting in the poll much at all. Um, I just don't see any scenario that it's not Trump versus, and I tend to agree with you now. I didn't begin with, but I tend it's going to be Trump versus somebody not named Joe Biden. Jake? The Republican side's about to get real interesting. You know, you got... Uh, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, three very, very different states in, in their own rights. Um, I think if Governor Haley's going to make a run, it starts in Iowa and then compounds in New Hampshire. But again, Donald Trump is the 800-pound gorilla that has been in the room now for quite some time, and he he's not going quietly. And seems to be getting a little bit stronger. It, it definitely seems that I, way. I'll give an example. The Des Moines Register is kind of the gold standard in Iowa polling. DeSantis gets the endorsement of a popular governor and one of the preeminent and prominent evangelical leaders. Trump goes up eight. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like when Sununu endorses Nikki in New Hampshire, Trump gets the benefit and, of and that. And it's the opposite of what everyone's, the pundits have been saying all this time. Just wait. When the field drops down, when we go from eight to four to two, then Trump can't win. But he seems to be gaining traction. So, so I got to ask you this. This is a little journalistic on my part. 
You both are members of the South Carolina General Assembly. Nikki Haley's a former governor of South Carolina. Both of you are on Team Trump. Help me with that. No, I, common sense. He's going to win, right? I mean, yeah. so, I mean, Nikki is, I don't know if, if he would even pick her for a VP, but a lot of these seem like those other eight that were running were trying to run for VP because Trump's had this thing locked up the whole time. I tell you, though, I think this Biden vote right now, all these polls are intentionally polling Biden low so, to make it so they want to remove him in the in the convention and jay it gives them a chance to deflate trump so first question um when i look at where we are in in the country in the united states and what we've been through through the the biden presidency and then washington being controlled by the democrats i'm looking at who's the most prepared to be president of the united states and that's based on to deal with the economic situation the international stuff and i i think donald trump has done it and it you know, certainly haven't always agreed with his presentation and his demeanor, but his policy, uh, a lot of his policy is hard to argue with. If Trump called the two of you, got about a minute, if Trump called either of you and said, who do I need to put as my VP? Do, do you have a sort of candidate that you would like to see him pick? First, it'd be me. Yeah. <laughs> Philip would do a great job. I can yeah. see that. I can see that. I'm for that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, everybody thinks he needs a female because he needs to help out somehow with this abortion vote. Um, so I think he's got to pick a female. And I mean, I don't know who that's going to be. If, if there's one out there, probably one we don't know about. It doesn't have a lot of dirt on. Yeah. Jay? I always go back to the who, who's best prepared if something happens to the president of the United States, who's best to take over midstream and. Whoever that person is is the person he needs to pick. Do you buy into the narrative it has to be a female or it needs to be a female? You know, I always fall back on the most qualified, prepared person, and if that's a female, that's great. The most qualified, prepared is always not the most fun. See, I'll, we're in the business of fun and games. <laughs> Thanks to both of you, and I, and we'll see you next week. We'll uh, we'll wish you a Merry Christmas then. Back in a few. 843-661-0937, last hour of the week. Before we go to the phone, I want to make one last plea for the week. We just had someone drop off a contribution. We certainly appreciate it. In the spirit of Christmas, Rev and I decided several years back to try our hand at helping. Uh, He's selfish. I'm selfish. He's greedy. I'm greedy. He's arrogant. I'm arrogant. (laughs) We try to be a bit giving uh, this time of the year. Uh, in, in, In the name of our faith and the season, of giving uh, the ladies in the office kind of, I don't know, we, we coerced them into being a part of this. And um, and they've done just yeoman's work in going out and finding gifts and and putting them in boxes and wrapping them up. And Pepsi of Florence is coming to pick them up. And then we'll, we'll carry it to six anonymous families. But we need more. We need more help. And some of the early starts on us. Uh, we, we had a glitch in our computer software and the way we tried to raise money online. And this is not for politics. This is not for, you know, um, some ideology or I mean, this is to help six families who, for whatever reason, have ended up in a place where Christmas does not look very promising. I mean, that's just the stark reality of where they are. The youth mentors of the PD, the Boys and Girls Club of the PD have identified these families. I think I can speak for Rev when I say Mr. Frank Avant one of the most charitable and generous men I've ever known in my life. There's a little irony in the anonymous family because he was such an anonymous giver to so many causes. The Avant family in general were very giving. 
to this community. Uh, Pepsi of Florence is a partner in this. Swap Payment Solutions is a sponsor. Anderson Brothers Bank is a sponsor. Walk Up Electrical is a sponsor. Herbs, uh, excuse me, Hubs Farmland, Trinity Auto Glass all stepped up, wanted to be a part of this. We need you to help. And once again, the slow start is on us. But we're asking you for the next, what, eight, nine days, please help us provide a Christmas to these six families. And we're not buying Ferraris. We're not paying for Disney vacations. It's space heaters. It's frying pans. I mean, there are some some toys in here for the kids. But these are people who are down on their luck, don't expect to have much of a Christmas. They need you, or we need you. They, they've not asked for anything. We're asking you to help us provide a Christmas um, that they'll always remember. The goodness of the human human condition. Remember, Josh, we talked yesterday about, you know, the weapons and humanity and right and wrong and feelings and emotions. Um, I just think, you know, the right thing to do if you've been somewhat blessed is to help someone this time of the year who may or may not have been as blessed as you. So we need contributions so we can go out and finish our shopping. And that's when I'll defer to the Rev. Uh, he'll do a better job of telling you exactly how you can make a contribution, a donation, so we can go out and finish this task of making sure these anonymous families have um, Christmases that um, that they never imagined they would be able to have. We now have a website address that will take you directly to the donation page. It's PepsiSeasonOfGiving.com. PepsiSeasonOfGiving.com. You'll be right on the page, and you can plug in your donation and uh, and then it becomes official at that point and we've been doing a lot of shopping i mean we've we've seen the the toys being uh and the other other non-toy items being gathered uh wrapped uh organized into the the boxes for the different families so we're well along in that process right now because think about it we're we're almost there as far as the calendar goes uh but you know we just got to put the the last bow on able to you know put this all together from a financial standpoint and that's where your help is just so much appreciated and again we tried to make it as easy as possible just go to pepsi season of giving.com well said let's go to the phone someone's there yeah our uh, next caller is joe in florence hello joe uh good morning guys uh ken I, I heard the sincerity of your plea yesterday and i just wanted to say i did go to the website and do what i can and it was easy peasy it's really a very easy thing to do and in, in many ways, that was my way of thanking you for all, all you guys do. And if you think this is the right cause, that's good enough for me. But um, I wanted to comment a little bit about what we started talking about yesterday. I'm, I'm usually a day late and some would say a dollar short. But we were talking about the profitability of war and, and disease. And uh, I'm the one that called yesterday to talk a little bit about the marketing toward uh, human nature's weak, weaknesses and foibles and Another aspect of human nature, I think, is that there's a little bit of predator or prey in all of us. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but, uh, you know, they, they call it the cola wars, the burger wars, the light beer wars. People in the business really kind of view it as, as a very serious activity. Matter of fact, Procter & Gamble, who sells detergents, um, their unwritten slogan used to be, take no prisoners. <laughs> so anyone who worked for Procter & Gamble got a sense of that. But one of the things I just wanted to comment on is I think predator prey is kind of a, a matter of degree in, in, in human beings. And, and some people can be cold-blooded killers, and some people just might want to get a little bit of an advantage in taking a test and have some crib sheets. But 
when I was working for the burger company, I remember the the person who came and, and pitched us on this promotion. His rationale was, I'm getting tired of my 25 foot speedboat. I wanted, I got my eye on a 35 footer, so I really need a big fourth quarter. I really need you guys to come through with the sales increase. And he was the one who said, you know, African American males, 1849, who are blue collar workers, that's our primary demo. Those are the ones I want you to go after. And we came up with a contest to give them a Corvette. The winning contest was a Corvette ZR1. And as a 28-year-old kid <laughs> from a, a town a little bit bigger than yours, but, you know, we had a couple stoplights. But, I mean, I was so turned on. You know, the devil on one shoulder was just screaming in my ear how much fun we were having picking out Corvettes and, you know, going and seeing how the scratch-off lottery tickets are, are, are produced and all that. But I got all caught up in that. I mean, it really seemed like a normal, natural, fun thing to do. And it was only when I got to get a little older and step back and got a little perspective that I realized that there's the predator prey in all of us. And some of it is innocuous and some of it is downright, you know, like Stalin-esque. So anyways, I just wanted to pick up on on a little bit of, of the idea of selling stuff in America and how it may start out as uh, deodorants, but it escalates all the way up to uh, up to war and, and, and disease. So. Uh, anyways, uh, good luck. I hope the, I hope the AVET project, you know, may, finishes strong on the way home. And, and and thanks for all you guys do. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. Kind of an interesting. Joe always has an interesting commentary. Um, not as much a question as much as kind of a commentary on some of the things we talk and about. Thank you for your donation. Well, let me Joe, by very the way. much Appreciate so. That. Thank you for your donation, and thank you for anybody that has given and will eventually um, give. It's important to us. I mean, it really does. I mean, it's um, it's inspiring to watch these ladies load up boxes and, and to know that eventually a kid will wake up on Christmas morning and get something they never imagined or expected. That's fulfilling um, to me, Josh, grab the mic. I need your help here. I mean, you're, you're the, um, you're the no count younger generation that we refer to so often. Uh, the boomers got everything right. You know that. I mean, we're going to stick it with 33 sure. trillion in, in federal debt. You guys figured out we're long gone. You know what I mean? We've had a hell of a ride, Josh. From Woodstock to quantitative easing, the baby boomers um, have left their mark. <laughs> My, you know, uh, technically, I'm last year the baby boomer. So, yeah, from Woodstock to quantitative easing, take that, you young bucks, and do the best you can with what's headed your way. As I get older, and I guess I've gotten to a point in my life where I think about getting older. I'm not an old man, but I, but I begin to think about, wow, I mean, where did the last 40 years go? You know, how can that be? As I've gotten over, I've chased contentment. I've tried to find, I, I don't know, uh, uh, there's a song with Rev and I music, kind of, um, I don't know, music dudes. And one of the great lines in Bob Seger's song, I began to find myself seeking shelter again and again. I mean, when I'm 25, I ain't seeking shelter. You know what I mean? Where's the wind blowing the hardest? That's where I want to stand. What hill's the tallest? That's the one I want to charge. What giant's the biggest? That's the one I want to fight. As I get older, I find myself sitting around a fire with a drink in hand, a couple of dogs mulling around. I'm, I'm content there. But the world says, and I think, I think Joe is going here, the world says, no. I mean, contentment is not profitable. I mean, if you're sitting around a fire happy with a, you know, the six-year-old pickup and four-year-old SUV, I mean, what are we going to do? So, so, so marketing and branding and, 
it, it, it really, I mean, it, it tries. In other words, I think we're all happier and, and society benefits. And I'm getting a bit psychobabbly here when we find contentment. Now, now I believe it's almost impossible for a 26 or seven or eight year old to find contentment because I think their brains are still full of whatever it is that, you know, the next great the, the, the fight, the next great, in, whatever, whatever. But once you get to a point where you've convinced yourself, wow, I mean, there's more in the rear view than there is in the, in the front windshield, you, you find yourself chasing and searching for contentment. But the wor- you, don't, you don't escape the world. I mean, when, when Josh has, you know, a 25-foot a boat because he's done well financially, and the world says, hey, we got this new 35-foot boat. I mean, the young guy goes, man, if I worked another week a year, and made another $2 an hour, that 35-foot boat would be the same economics as the 25-foot. The, the guy mine in Rev's age would go, screw that. Sit around this fire. You know, that 25-foot <laughs> boat is just fine. In fact, I'd probably like to sell it and get a 20-footer, to, to be honest yeah, that's with true. you. But, but the world doesn't allow us to do that unscathed. I mean, it doesn't let us escape all these marketing forces. Does that make sense to you, Josh? I mean, you, you you said something this morning that, that I do something that reminds you of your father. So your father would be roughly my age. I mean, I may be a touch older, but he'd be roughly, roughly my age. Um, do you find your father finding contentment, kind of the battle for contentment um, in this world that says, no, don't be content, but there's more stuff to buy, more things to do, more places to go? Um, I get the point you're getting at, which is that people of the older generation are more content. We're, we're uh, not, see, see, and I think that's what you, we're trying to find content. We're seeking. Sure. But the world says, no, 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 no. Forget selling that 25-foot boat to get a 20-footer. You need this 35-footer. You see where I'm headed? Yeah. The things we're searching for are in direct contrast to the life the media is marking us toward. Yeah, and like I said, I get the point you're getting at. However, uh, as you know, I'm a very exceptional person <laughs> and very humble. Yeah. Uh, my Obviously. dad, well, you're, you're, I love you're my in dad. good company. Yes. <laughs> I love my dad very much, but he is a material girl. He loves his ATVs, his boats, and, and I'm not that way. I, I'm very content uh, with what I have, and I would prefer to be around a fire rather than be on a 35-foot boat. So as you're, opposed to a 25 So you're boat. an old soul. Yes. A, a young guy, but an old soul. Yeah. Rev, you were nodding your head. I mean, do you, you find yourself searching again and again, you know, for shelter from the wind? Yes. And I was, as you described, you know, the contentment and the less, I guess, the, the less focus on the material things I was thinking about. It, and, and I really hadn't been much aware about that. But I mean, cars, for example, you know, when I was younger, you know, I, I wanted the, you know, the sports car, the T-tops, and I had that. Um, now. I just want transportation. You know, now I like a nice vehicle as much as the next person. Of course, I'm not, you know, I'm not lying here, but you know, I'm not striving and saying, man, if I could just, you know, do this, I could. I'm willing that. to work another 10 hours a week to have this right. newer, more, you know, more, more, more uh, bells and whistly car. Yeah. yeah. So, and so I'm wondering, as you describe that, whether that's ba- that we're talking about the same thing. Here. Okay. But, but okay. We're, we're music guys, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm at the gym earlier this week, in fact. And, and we're talking about life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. 
And if, and if anybody in that gym locker room ever finds out that I was once in politics and host a radio show, I've tried to keep that <laughs> off the record as much as I can because uh, I get more information like that. I mean, I hear a conversation right there about Trump and Biden. And they don't know their butt from third base, but I just listen. You know, and I'm, I'm, you know, well, I mean, you know, Trump did this, and you know, Biden didn't do that. You know, Trump didn't do this. And, and it's both ways. I mean, it's not one-sided. I mean, there, there's a debate about that. But, but once they figure out, okay, this guy was in politics, does a radio show, knows a lot more than I know, um, the, the conversation seems to change. It's not as political as it once was. Um, but, but I would be one of the older guys in the gym. I mean, I'm there at least four days a week, most times five days a week, and I would be one of the older guys in the gym. And we're talking about music here. So an African-American, I, I think he just got out of the Army, two or three, and we, we've talked a lot, locker kind of beside my locker. He asked me one day this week, what makes you come up here like you do? Because I'm kind of contradicting myself. I'm seeking shelter again and again, but I don't want to let the old man in. You know, that, that was my response to him. I said, man, I, I don't want to let the old man in. What, what, but, but, but I do want the, the perspectives of the old man. In other words, I want to be content. I, I want to be um, not as motivated to go out and do, um, you know, my, my wife tells me all the time, please tell me this will be the last thing you do. You know, we're in the middle of a development project right now. It ain't going real well. We, we had a model on 4% interest. Well, guess what? Interest Oops. ain't 4% anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Things change. So, so we've had to scramble a bit. And she's always, hey, promise me that this will be the last thing you do. And I said, okay, I'll promise you that if we win the lottery. But if we don't win the lottery, I got to figure out a way to generate cash flow and then make some more money and do these things and do. I don't know. I'm just thinking about, and it really goes back to something that we touched on yesterday. Um, I mean, I wrote these four words down while Joe was talking. Feelings, thinking, emotions and logic josh young josh no shot josh how many the majority of decisions you make are influenced or affected by feelings emotions thinking logic what do you suck at and what are you good at i mean you in those categories yeah i mean are are you when when you make a decision was it was it too in, in retrospect i mean you don't know when you're making it you'd make the right decision every time if you knew it on the front end but as you look back on decisions you made, and Rev, I'll ask this, were your decisions too influenced by your feelings or emotions and not enough by thinking and logic or, because I got a buddy of mine who will talk himself out of really good opportunities. His thinking and logic is so conservative that he won't allow his feelings or emotions to kind of step out a little bit and do something that appears to, I mean, this will work. Yeah, but I mean, it could not. You know, the logic says, I don't could not. I mean, there, there's a there's a 5% chance of failure. And I just don't want to take that. Charlie Munger said something interesting about, and I'm rambling now, but stick with Charlie Munger said, the late Charlie Munger, died at 99, Berkshire Hathaway. He was asked at a Berkshire Hathaway um, shareholders meeting his opinion of Elon Musk. And he said, Elon's one of the most ambitious men I've ever known. And he said, I don't know him well, but we've met. I mean, billionaires tend to bump into other billionaires. You and I don't, and that's cool. But Munger said, Warren and I have decided that the Musk model consists of too many failures. We don't want to fail that much. We're not going to change humanity forever. I mean, we're not going to the Mar- I'm going to Mars. We're not, we're not trying to put hypersonic trains together. We're not, we're not um, I don't know, revolutionizing the auto industry. I mean, we're buying good companies for fair prices. 
and hope that they were they run better and make a profit and we disperse that profit to all of our our share. That can be boring, but we don't <laughs> we don't fail much doing that. Elon fails too much. Elon's ambition, and it's so what I'm I mean obviously Elon would be the convergence of feelings, emotions, thinking, and logic. I just thought that was interesting when Charlie Munger says, you know. We're, we're we're not interested in what Elon does because Elon's going to fail a lot. Yeah, big risk with reward, I guess. Go big or go home, I guess. Eight four three six six one. I was thinking about something else because I'm not a song lyrics guy, as you know. We've had that discussion many times. You're the lyrics guy. I'm the music guy. But it's funny because you're talking about the Bob Seger song "Against the Wind" and and seeking shelter and that part of the lyric that uh, has always meant something to you. Well, there's the other line in that song that actually is a lyric I paid attention to and always enjoyed was, you know, I wish I didn't know now what I didn't know then. Amen. Amen from the back row. (laughs) (laughs) Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. David in the PD. Good morning. Hey, good morning. I guess we can call it the old soul day, the OG Ken and young Josh show. Uh, I think there is a young Josh out there. I don't know, but I was listening yesterday to Jeff and the other winers, and I, I'll give Jeff credit. There's a select few brave enough to call in uh, talk show radio. So I give him credit because that's what separates us from, I mean, you've never heard a Chairman Cheese Wake Up China show sponsored by the Wuhan Lab. So that's good about your show, man. Uh, you brought up something very interesting yesterday, Ken, you use these two terms, safe and satisfied. People want to be safe and satisfied. And unfortunately, politicians look at that and then they turn in another word. I call it subsidized. So anyway, I'm thinking about the world we grew up. I never dreamed that I would, I, I would consider calling a team a kiosker. People would rather go to a kiosk than to a real person. Uh, the virtuals, people would rather do stuff online, and the double dippers. That's our government friends up there in Fairfax County that are making a hell of a living uh, double dipping off of us. But anyway, if I don't get to talk to you because Jeff takes over the show sometimes, Merry Christmas. Thank you, David. Merry Christmas to you and Merry Christmas to all of our all of our listeners. I mean, we got another week that we'll get, you know, chance to get mushy and sappy with one another. Mm-hmm. Um but but to, to the point of Jeff and Williams and and some of the others, I mean it, it, it it's refreshing to me. It's encouraging to me that Williams will take a moment of his morning to call in and antagonize, <laughs> you know, or, or Jeff will call True. in. And I, I get it. I mean I understand it. Because sometimes I wonder. I say, why does Williams, for example, listen to the show? Why do I watch CNN? Right. I mean, yeah, I, I, know, I, 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 know I give going them to... a little credit for that. I, I give Jeff sure. and Williams and anybody else who might listen that doesn't agree with what we say and the, and the general subjects that we talk about and the, the opinions of our listeners that call for the most part, the fact that they listen and want to get engaged or antagonize or whatever they whatever. Well, not, I said that tongue in cheek, but it's obvious they, they have a tolerance. I mean, if you were completely intolerant of what somebody said that you disagree with, you would just remove yourself from that yeah, part of the just, equation. Just, only. just turn it off. I mean, you know, my, my wife will ask me, why do you watch CNN? It makes you mad. Well, I, I want to know what the other side thinks. I want to understand what I'm up against. I mean, if I'm trying to win, and in the weirdest way imaginable, guys, we're trying to win hearts and souls. 
I mean, every one of us, every day in our lives, I mean, we make an impact, an impression um, on, on people. Uh, I don't take that lightly. M- maybe I take it too seriously. I may, maybe that's one of my, I get too wired up about, hey, am I impacting my community in a positive way? Am I impacting my world in, in, in a positive way? Um, I mean, I don't have any interest in being a hell hacker, but I think sometimes it's required. I, I think there are some of us that have to say things that must be said. And and I do believe, I mean, I think about God's will in my life and God's will in your life. And am I where I'm supposed to be and doing what, I, and I've screwed up so much. Um, I mean, somebody sent me a, a text a second ago, a good lawyer friend of mine. For me to talk so terribly about lawyers, I got a bunch of lawyer friends, but he sent me a text about uh, 10 minutes ago. We're talking about contentment. He said, at this point, I'm a firm believer that um, in my life, less is more. He's about my age, somewhere thereabout. Amen, brother. Uh, and trying to clean up the residue of my burning desire to have more and more. You know, so you can't be <laughs> so content because you left a mess back there and you got to try to uh, figure it out the best you can. But I do believe that it's necessary. Josh, I think it's essential that some of us who have found some degree of liberation in our lives are able to say things that others believe need to be said. And, and this show gives me an opportunity. It's very cathartic. It's very therapeutic. Um, some mornings I can't stand the alarm going off at four 30. I can't stand leaving the house at five minutes till five, but you know what I, I love? How many people in the world get four hours to tell others what they think, what they believe? I mean, unfettered. I mean, I know we got FCC and I got ownership and Bruce and Jim only once I can think of have not challenged me, but questioned me about something I said over the air. And you know what the conversation went as? I'll never forget it because I thought I was called into the office. It was something I said about local politics. And they said, hey, do you believe what you said? Yes, 100%. Well, keep saying it. I mean, it was contradictory. It was um, a little bit controversial. But, but, but I want Jeff to be welcomed. I want Williams to be welcomed. I, and I know there are others out there that don't agree with what I say, don't buy what I'm selling, don't believe in what I believe in. I want those people to be welcomed and and comfortable and not antagonized when they call into the show uh, because I think that makes all of us better. It, th- what frustrates me is Revels say something he read on Facebook. The second Jeff calls, I turn it away, and I turn it back when Jeff is finished. I mean, I understand that. We, you, we get that a lot. Well, we I mean, really we get do. that a lot, and, yeah. and I understand that they believe this is their safe space. You know, we don't get a fair shake on CNN. We don't get a fair shake at the Times or the Post or, or the Wall Street Journal. We don't get a fair shake at NBC, ABC, CBS News. I mean, this is the one place that we do have the upper hand. Conservative talk radio has morphed into a, a tremendous ally of, of right-of-center thinking and right-of-center politics. And, and to let those guys infiltrate our efforts is it's just not the way it should be. Uh, I get it. I mean, I understand it. But, but I still believe that we are more legitimate when we allow people to call in who have disagreeable opinions, who can articulate those disagreeable opinions in a um, in an understandable and functioning um, fashion. So I don't ever want to stop doing that. And, and I think the, I mean, if this show has any beauty, I think it goes back to Josh's question of Rev. Who do we let call? Who do we let through? And Josh, the answer was? Everyone. Everyone. I mean, you know, Rev is never, I mean, at times during a break, Rev will say, hey, Breeze is on line one, Larry's on line two, 
I've got two callers. The majority of times, I don't have a clue. I mean, I don't have any idea who you are or what you're calling about. And I just think it forces me to be more sincere, to be more spontaneous. Um, give me, uh, a, you know, 10 minutes to prepare. And I don't know that it's as good. I don't know that it's as real. I'll, I'll give an example. Every morning except this morning, I knew exactly how I wanted to begin the show. We didn't do it a single time. Three, two, one. Welcome to wait. I mean, I knew I'd already had some notes written, and I believed that that's how we were going to start the show. And we never did. It was always a bob or a weave or, you know, a little turn here, turn, turn there. And I think, and that's why I've always said that to me, talk radio is the last bastion of critical thinking, independent thinking, um, confrontational conversations about what we believe. And, um, and the media has morphed into something. It's, it's a little bit, it's advertiser driven. It's a little bit like they're, um, the advertisers are the donors and the media are the candidates. So if this is a conservative media outlet, I need to be a conservative company. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm selling gold bars. Uh, you know, I, I get it. I mean, I understand it. But, but I, I look at news today in America as if it were a political campaign. I'll give you an example. Ramaswamy was interrupted. I mean, you know, that lady professes to be a journalist. She's to let Vivek Ramaswamy tell people what he believes. But she took it upon him herself to confront what he said. She talked over him for three minutes. This is the CNN town mm-hmm. hall the other mm-hmm. night. And she was the host or the moderator. And it was about January 6th and him making the point that more and more people are believing and evidence seems to be proving that something was up. You know, there were agents in the crowd, that the crowds were let into the Capitol building, which is against the narrative. And the whole time he was trying to give his opinion, she talked over, interrupted, and tried to stop him. And, and, and the journalist would have said, let him finish, and then said, do you have any proof of this? And he would have offered up what he yeah. considers to be proof. May disagree with it, but he would have offered up what he perceived to be proof. But it really began with Candy Crawley. Remember the big lady that hosted the debate oh, or yeah. moderated the debate Never between uh, Mitt Romney and Barack, Obama. and Barack Obama? See, Romney wants to be a statesman, so he respected Crowley. Trump would have said, you're a mean lady. I mean, you're a mean and dishonest lady. I mean, you need to let me finish my, you know, my your job's to moderate the debate, not participate in the debate. But Romney's too dignified and too reverent, and that's why he's a loser. Um, and that's why the last people we need to listen to in regards to where to go from here is President Romney and Vice President Ryan. <laughs> right. Let's remember that. Anytime President Romney gives advice to the GOP, anytime Vice President Ryan gives advice to the GDP, Remember, the election was there for the taking, and the reverent, dignified Republicans got their ass handed to them and should have. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. We're commemorating, Josh, is what we're doing. Older guys commemorating (laughs) about days gone by at the country and world we live, you and your younger uh, and no-count generation. You care to opine on any of our previous commentary? Um, no. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're contemplating these days the type of country we're going to leave for Josh, his generation, and Keith Richards. Well, let me take that uh, a bad one. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you know my position. I should I should be the ruler of everything, and yeah. then everything would be great. Well, yeah. I mean, if you were the ruler of everything, task one is what? 
I mean, if somebody um, granted you ultimate authority and you could run the world as you see fit or run America as you see fit, the day you step in the king's office, you would do what? I think the easiest thing to do. Uh, I didn't ask is, you that. I said the first thing that you would do is what? I'd establish a lingua franca. English is the only, uh, you have to speak English to be a citizen. And just just for the fun of it, I'd make speaking Spanish in public illegal. <laughs> Punishable by what? Um, Caning? No, no. Just hanging. You, know, you might not have a hand. What, the what, next okay, day. I, I get that. I get that. You're, you're such a, um, a diplomatic soul. <laughs> Second would be, so we've established uh, English as the official language. Yes. Anybody that violates that loses a, uh, you know, uh, an arm, mm-hmm. a hand. I don't think you said arm. No, just I mean, the you're, hand. You're a little we'll start lenient. With the hand. Okay, just start with a hand. Yeah. Um, once, I mean, I got to believe that if you do that once or twice, people speak English. Oh, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I doubt yeah. very seriously you'd hear a lot of them. Um, yeah, they, they get the message. Uh, and then what? I mean, after you've, because that wouldn't take long. I mean, you know, you go to some of the um, some of the more diverse places in America and you notice people walking around with no hands, um, you know, sooner or later, people say, okay, guy's serious about making English English the official language. And then what happens, Josh? Uh, the next thing I do is say that crime and this leniency in society has gotten way too out of hand. So for the next decade... But don't they, get, don't they understand that you're pretty serious about crime if you criminalize a non-speaking <laughs> of English and the punishment is losing a hand? Yeah, See, but I think you, I, I think I you needed, sent that you, message. You, yeah, you, That's a pretty good shot across the, the bow there, old Josh. Yeah, but there's a lot of people that commit crimes that don't speak Spanish. So to them, I'd say <laughs> every single crime for the next 10 years, and then after that, you know, we'll, we'll see how things are going, is punishable by at least one year in jail. So if so we catch any you littering, crime at all. if you litter, you're going to jail for one year. <laughs> And, of course, I've said this to you before. I don't know if I said it on the show, but I've said it to you all in private. Prisons will now be labor camps for the benefit of the prisoners. Because so you're not old enough to remember the chain gang. I don't know I mean, what that, that is. That, that would have been the labor camps. I mean, that would have been what, what you would call labor camps we refer to as the chain gang. Yeah, we're bringing back the chain gangs because they're, they're in prison because not only are they not contributing to society, but they're actively working against it so now we have to you know they're in prison they're now they're being going to be forced to contribute whether they like it or not and i don't see that as an issue a lot of people equate that with slavery but uh i don't care it's it's uh to me it just makes sense i mean if why should this guy who is stealing because he doesn't want to work for things or whatever uh now he's gonna he's gonna have his own bed for free and health care for free I don't think not so. on Josh's watch. Heck no. So, so crime, tough on crime would be your primary focus at first. I mean, it seems yes. to be. Yeah. I mean, I think if you come out of the shoot and declare speaking non-English is a crime, people pretty much understand guys pretty serious about <laughs> being tough on crime. That's and right. then, and then you follow that up with, and if I catch you speaking a language other than English, you lose a, a hand. Yeah. You yeah. don't have to go to jail. You but, get, you, and you don't have to lose your hand. You can go home. Okay. So not <laughs> not speaking English. English. Is, okay. Not speaking English <laughs> means I lose a hand. Mm-hmm. Littering means I go to jail for a year. Now, let me clarify. 
English is the lingua franca, which means I it's the you. state language. You You're have right. to speak it to live here, but speaking Spanish is the one where you 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 lose the hand. <laughs> if, if if I catch you speaking uh, Swedish, yeah, you know. Well, 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 what if you uh, talk like Ken talks? That's English. How does Ken talk? That's insulting. <laughs> <laughs> what? What, what? Kinisms are allowed. Okay. Kinisms are allowed. Fair enough. Because it's kind of a. I mean, it's 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 creative. Mo- mostly English. It's creative. Mm-hmm. What do you mean mostly English? <laughs> People know what I mean. Yeah, exactly. So okay. there you go. And you know what I mean. <laughs> you speak English and you understand. It, yeah, so. I mean, I understand it. And <laughs> well, um, yeah, of course. Yeah. So you know, it, it's a little bit like you know. I, I understand that some people have trouble. Um, but there, there's an old Eddie Murphy skit when he's talking about James Brown, and he said there are people in the band going. And James goes, ah, wah, wah, wah. and the band goes, what, what did James say? I don't know, man, but he's paid us for 13 years. Just keep playing. You know, yep. nobody knows what James oh, is saying, yeah. but just keep playing. But he sounds good yeah. saying it. Yeah. <laughs> Ow. Uh, what, what did James say? I don't know. We, we, none of us know, but just keep playing. I mean, he's, he's paid us for 15 years. You know, the fabulous flames, right? James Brown and the fabulous flames. Time for some trivia. You ready? 843-661-0937. We've talked a lot about Pepsi of Florence. And how much help they've been to this feeble attempt at Radio Brilliance. Um, they also sponsor our Takes Mondays to Make Fridays trivia question. I'll tell you, speaking kinisms with a cough drop in your mouth, it can get complicated. But I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> so if you notice uh, a mispronouncing of a word or two or three, it's because of the cough drop. Not that I don't understand how to speak fluid English. Yeah, I don't want any part it. of Josh's legal consequences axe, Dave. to not being to do that. Uh, we talked about music, talked about movies. Here's my trivia question. First correct answer wins a six-pack of Pepsi product, a couple of Takes Mondays to Make Fridays T-shirts. In Home Alone, where are the McAllisters going on vacation when they leave Kevin behind? In Home Alone, where are the McAllisters going on vacation when they leave Kevin behind? 843 661 0937 is our number. Do we have a call? Hi, you're on the air. What's your guess? Hello, hello? Maybe we don't. Not. Yeah, yeah. Somebody had a wrong guess and hung up before they embarrassed themselves and appeared <laughs> to be foolish. Let's go to the phone. I'm waiting on the next. We had actually two lines ring and then they both dropped. This Maybe. would be a great time to have an issue with the phones. Oh, wouldn't it? I mean, this would be yeah. a stupendous moment to have an issue with the phones. Um, okay, we're not having a call. Eight four three six. Where in Home Alone? Where are the McAllisters going on vacation when they leave Kevin behind? Yeah, nothing yet here. Okay. Do uh-huh. I get the chance to steal if we run out of time? <laughs> That's right. Paying some family feud. We had several calls, but I think as they called, the yeah. phones uh, dropped. Anyway, are we breaking an FCC rule if we say we're having a contest yeah. but we can't? Yeah, we have, we have a technical issue. It is what it is. Well, I mean, I think we're breaking an FCC violation. <laughs> I, I think so. I mean, I think we're misleading our listeners. We're telling our listeners if you call into the show, there's a chance to win a prize. They're calling into the show, and they have zero chance to win a All prize. Right, we have the phone we're ringing. We're fraudsters. Yeah. Hi, you're on. What's your guess? Just have a few seconds here. Oh, man. Yeah. See? Something's up. In Home Alone, where are the McAllisters going on vacation when they leave Kevin behind? Hi, you're on. What's your guess? Paris, France. You're right. Paris. Who is this? Where are you calling from? Will from Dixon. Okay. Dylan. Sit tight, Will from Dylan. Josh will get you information. Enjoy your weekend. We'll talk Monday.